Chapter 25 In the odd dream, I had a hot tub. I lay back in it, luxuriating, the water churning to a controlled froth by jets that hit it and me from dozens of angles. The water was at that perfect temperature, a little short of scalding my skin, and the heat of it sank into muscle and bone, warming me deliciously and washing away aches and pains. It was an odd dream, because I have never in my life been in a hot tub. I opened my eyes and looked slowly around me. The hot tub was set in the floor of what looked like a natural cave. Low, reddish light came from what looked like some kind of moss growing on the stalactites overhead. That was odd, because I'd never been in a cave like this, either. Hello? I called. My voice bounced around the empty cavern. I heard the sound of movement, and a woman stepped into sight from behind a rock formation. She was a little taller than average, and had hair that fell in a sheet of golden silk to her shoulders. She was dressed in a silken tunic belted with soft rope, both pure white. The outfit neither displayed any impropriety nor allowed anyone looking to ignore the beauty of the body it clothed. Her eyes were of a deep, deep blue, like a sunny October sky, and her skin glowed with wholesome appeal. She was, quite simply, a stunning creature. Hello. I thought it was time we had a talk, she said. You've had a hard day. I thought pleasant surroundings might suit you. I eyed her for a moment. I was naked, which was good. The surface of the pool had enough in the way of bubbles and froth to be opaque, which was also good. It saved me the embarrassment of my response to her. Who are you? She lifted golden brows in a faint smile and seated herself beside the hot tub on the floor of the cave, her legs together and to one side, her hands folded on her lap. Have you not reasoned it yourself by now? I stared at her for a long minute and then said quietly, Lashio. The woman bowed her head, smiling in acknowledgment. Indeed. You can't be here, I said. I sealed you into the floor under my lab. I imprisoned you. Indeed you did, the woman said. What you see here is not my true self as such. Think of me as a reflection of the true Lashiel who resides within your mind. As a what? When you chose to touch the coin, you accepted this form of my awareness within you, Lashiel said. I am an imprint, a copy. I swallowed. You live in my head, and you can talk to me? I can now, Lashiel said, now that you have chosen to employ what I have offered you. I took in a deep breath. Hellfire. I used hellfire today to empower my magic. You made the conscious choice to do so, she said. And as a result, I can now appear to your conscious mind, she smiled. Actually, I've been looking forward to meeting you. You are a great deal more interesting than most I have been given to. You, uh, I said, you don't look much like a demon. Keep in mind, please, that I was not always a resident of hell. I relocated there. She looked at herself. Shall I add the wings, a harp, a golden halo? Why are you asking me? I asked. Because I am something of a guest, she said. 
It costs me nothing to take on an appearance that pleases my host. Uh-huh, I said. If you're my guest, then get out. She laughed, and there was nothing alluring or musical about it. It was just laughter, warm and genuine. That isn't possible, I'm afraid. By taking the coin, you invited me in. You cannot simply will me away. Fine, I said. This is a dream. I'll wake up. See ya. I made the simple effort of will required to wake myself from a dream. And nothing happened. Maybe it's the painkillers, Lashiel suggested. And you were, after all, very tired. It looks like we'll be spending a little time together. I glared for a while. I don't usually take the time to glower at things in dreams, either. What do you want, I said. To make you an offer, she said. The answer is no, I said. We now return me to my regularly scheduled dream. She pursed her lips, then smiled again. I think you want to hear me out, she said. This is your dream, after all. If you truly wished me to be gone, don't you think you could make it so? Maybe it's the hot tub, I suggested. I saw that you'd never experienced one, Lashiel said. She dipped a toe into the pool and smiled. I have, often. Do you like it? It's okay, I said, and tried to look like I didn't think it was just about the nicest thing ever for an aching and tired body. You know what I know, huh? I exist within your mind, she said. I see what you see, feel what you feel. I learn what you learn, and quite a bit more besides. What is that supposed to mean, I said. That I can do you a great deal of good, she said. I have the knowledge and memory of two thousand years of life upon this world and infinite thousands outside it. I know many things that could be of use to you. I can advise you, teach you secrets of your craft never known to mortal kind, show you sights no human has ever seen, share with you memory and image beyond anything you could imagine. By any chance, does all of this knowledge and power and good advice come for only three easy installments of 1995, plus shipping and handling? The fallen angel arched a golden brow at me. Or maybe it comes with a bonus set of knives, tough enough to saw through a nail, yet still cut tomatoes like this. She regarded me steadily and said, You aren't nearly as funny as you think you are. I had to come up with some kind of response to your offer to corrupt and enslave me. Bad jokes seemed perfectly appropriate because I can only assume that you've got to be kidding. Lashiel pursed her lips, a thoughtful expression. It made me start thinking about how soft her mouth looked, for example. Is that what you think I want? A slave? I gotta look at how you guys work, I said. You're referring to Ursiel's previous host, yes? Yes. He was insane, broken. I'm not eager to give it a whirl for myself. Lashiel rolled her eyes. Oh, please. Ursiel is a mindless thug. He doesn't care what happens to the holder of his coin, provided he gets to taste blood as often as possible. I don't operate that way. Sure you don't. She shrugged. Your derision will not unmake the truth. Some of my kindred prefer domination in their relationships with mortals. The wiser among us, though, find a mutual partnership to be much more practical and beneficial for both parties. 
You saw something of how Nicodemus functions with Anduriel, did you not? No offense, but I would shove a sharpened length of rebar into one ear and out the other if I thought I was going to turn into anything like Nicodemus. Her expression registered surprise. Why? Because he's a monster, I said. Lashiel shook her head. Perhaps, from your perspective, but you know very little of him and his goals. I know he did his damnedest, literally, to kill me and two of my friends, and God knows how many innocent people with that plague, and he did kill another friend. What is your point? Lashiel asked. She seemed genuinely confused. The point is that he crossed the line, and I'm never going to play on his team. He doesn't get understanding or sympathy anymore, not from me. He's got payback coming. You wish to destroy him? In a perfect world, he would vanish off the face of the earth and I would never hear of him again, I said. But I'll take whatever I can get. She absorbed that for a few moments and then nodded slowly. Very well, she said. I will depart. But let me leave you with a thought. As long as you leave... She smiled, rising. I understand your refusal to allow another to control your life. It's a poisonous, repugnant notion to think of someone who would dictate your every move, impose upon you a code of behavior you could not accept, and refuse to allow you choice, expression in the pursuit of your own heart's purpose. Pretty much, I said. The fallen angel smiled. Then believe me when I say that I know precisely how you feel. All of the fallen do. A little cold spot formed in the pit of my stomach, despite the hot tub. I shifted uncomfortably in the water. We have that in common, wizard, Lashiel said. You've no reason to believe me, but consider for a moment the possibility that I am sincere in my offer. I could do a great deal to help you and you could continue to live your life on your own terms and in accordance with your own values. I could help you be ten times the force for good that you already are. With that power, I should have power too great and terrible, and over me the ring would gain a power still greater and more deadly, I said. Gandalf to Frodo, the demon said, smiling. But I am not sure the metaphor is applicable. You needn't actually take up the coin if it did not suit you to do so. The aid I can offer you in this shadow form is far more limited than if you took up the coin, but it is not inconsiderable. Ring, coin, whatever. The physical object is only a symbol in any case, a symbol for power. I merely offer you the benefit of my knowledge and experience, she said. Yes, I said. Power. I've already got more than I'm comfortable with. Which is the foremost reason that you, of all people, are capable of wielding it responsibly. Maybe I am, I said. Maybe not. I know how it works, Lassiel. The first taste is free. The price goes up down the line. She watched me with luminous blue eyes. See, if I start leaning on you now, how long is it going to be before I decide that I need more of your help? How long before I start digging up the concrete in my lab because I think I need your coin in order to survive? And, she asked quietly, if you do need it to survive? I sat in the swirling hot waters and sighed. Then I closed my eyes, made an effort of will, 
and reshaped the dream we stood within so that the hot tub was gone and I stood dressed and facing her on a solid cavern floor. If it comes to that, I hope I die with a little bit of style, because I'm not going to sign on with Down Below, not even in Hell's Foreign Legion. Fascinating, Lashiel said. She smiled at me. My God, it was beautiful. It wasn't merely physical loveliness or the appearance of warmth. It was the whole sense of her, the vibrant, glowing life of the being before me, a life with energy enough to ignite a star. Seeing her smile was like watching the sun rise on the very first morning, like feeling the caress of the first breeze of the first spring. It made me want to laugh and run and spin around in it, like the sunny days of a childhood I could only dimly remember. But I held myself back. Beauty can be dangerous, and fire, though lovely, can burn and kill when not treated with respect. I faced the fallen angel cautiously, my posture unthreatening but unbowed. I faced her beauty and felt the radiant warmth of her presence and held myself from reaching out for it. I'm not fascinating, I said. I am what I am. It isn't perfect, but it's mine. I'm not making deals with you. Lashiel nodded, her expression thoughtful. You've been burned in bargains past, and you have no desire to repeat the experience. You are wary of dealing with me and those like me, and for good reason. I don't think I would have had any lasting respect for you if you had accepted my offer at face value, even though it is genuine. Gee, I would have felt crushed by your lack of respect. She laughed with a lot of belly in it, genuinely pleased. I admire your will, your defiance. As something of a defiant being myself, I think we might forge a strong partnership, given time to develop it. That won't happen, I said. I want you to leave. Get thee behind me, she asked. Something like that. She bowed her head. As you wish, my host. I request that you merely consider my offer. Should you wish to converse with me again, you have only to call my name. I won't, I said. As it pleases you, she said. Then she was gone, and the dream cavern was darker and lonelier for her absence. I relaxed and went back to my sleep and my solitary dreams. I was too tired to remember if any of them had a hot tub. Chapter 26 I slept hard and didn't wake up until well after sunrise. I heard voices, and after a minute I identified the sharp, crackling edges of tone that told me they were coming out of a radio. I got up and gave myself a washcloth bath at the bathroom sink. It wasn't as nice as a hot tub, and not even as nice as a shower, but I didn't feel like sticking my aching leg into a trash bag and taping it shut so that I could get one without getting my bandages wet. I couldn't find my clothes anywhere, so I wandered out into the house in my bare feet and mangled pants. The hospital staff had cut the pant leg mostly off of my wounded leg, and the edges were rough and uneven. I passed a mirror in the hallway of the house and stopped to examine myself. I looked like a joke. A bad joke. Mysterious power outage continues, the radio announcer was saying. In fact, it's difficult to estimate how long we'll be able to stay on the air, or even how many people are actually receiving this broadcast.
Gasoline-powered generators have been encountering odd trouble throughout the city. Batteries seem unreliable, and other gasoline-powered engines, including those of vehicles, are behaving unpredictably. The telephone lines have been having all kinds of problems, and cell phones seem to be all but useless. O'Hare is completely shut down, and as you can imagine, it's playing havoc with airline traffic throughout the nation. Thomas was standing in the kitchen at the gas stove. He was making pancakes and listening to an old battery-powered radio sitting on Murphy's counter. He nodded to me, put a finger against his lips, and flicked a glance at the radio. I nodded, folded my arms, and leaned against the doorway to listen to the announcer continue. National authorities have declined to comment on the matter, though the mayor's office has given a statement blaming the problems on unusual sunspot activity. Thomas snorted. The radio prattled on. That answer doesn't seem to hold much water, given that in cities as near as the south side of Joliet, all systems are behaving normally. Other sources have suggested everything from an elaborate Halloween hoax to the detonation of some kind of electromagnetic pulse device, which has disrupted the city's electrical utilities. A press conference has reportedly been scheduled for later this evening. We'll be on the air all through the current crisis, giving you up-to-date information as quickly as we... The announcer's voice broke up into wild static and sound. Thomas reached over and flipped the radio off. Had it on for twenty minutes, he said. Got a clear signal for maybe five of them. I grunted. Do you know what's happened? Maybe, I said. Where's Butters? Thomas tilted his head toward the back door. Walking mouse. I took a seat at the little kitchen table, getting my weight off of my injured leg. Today's going to be pretty intense, I said. Thomas flipped a pancake. Because of the heirs of Kemmler? Yeah, I said. If Mab is right about what they're trying to do, someone has to stop them before tonight. Why? Because after that, I'm not sure anyone will be able to stop them, I said. My brother nodded. Think you can take them? They're fighting among themselves, I said. They're all going to be more worried about their fellow necromancers than they are about me. Uh-huh, Thomas said. But do you think you can take them? No. Then what you're talking about isn't heroism, man. It's suicide. I shook my head. I don't need to kill them. I only need to stop them. If I play this right, I won't need to fight anybody. Thomas flipped another pancake. The cooked side was a uniform shade of perfect light brown. How are you going to manage that? They need two things to make this godhood thing go, I said the Earl King, and the knowledge in the word of Kemmler. If I can deny them either, the whole shebang is cancelled. You figure out those numbers yet? Thomas asked. No. So what? You're going to put a hit on the Earl King to keep him from showing up? I shook my head. Mab gave me the impression that the Earl King was in the same weight class as her. She tough? Thomas asked. Beyond the pale, I said. So you can't kill the Earl King. What then? I summon him myself. He arched an eyebrow. Look, no matter how mighty he is, he can't be in two places at once. If I call him up and keep him busy, then the heirs can't summon him to their ceremony. He nodded. How are you going to call him? The book, I said. It's almost got to be one of those poems or songs. One of them must be an incantation to attract the Earl King's attention. But you don't have the book, Thomas said. Yeah, I said. That's the kink I haven't worked out yet.
Thomas nodded, scraping the last of the batter out of a bowl and onto the griddle. Even if you do figure out how to call the Earl King, it sounds like he might be kind of dangerous. Probably, but impersonal. That means not as dangerous as one of the heirs going godly and showing up to give me some payback for annoying them, I shrugged. And the only one in danger will be me. Wrong, Thomas said. I'll be with you. I had been sure he would say something like that, but hearing it still felt pretty good. Thomas had a truckload of baggage, and he wasn't always the most pleasant person in the world, but he was my brother. Family. He'd stand with me. Which made what came next hard to say. You can't, I said. His expression smoothed over into neutrality. Because of Mavra? No, I said because I'm going to bring in the White Council. Thomas dropped his spatula onto the kitchen floor. I have to, I said. It took all the wardens together to take down Kemmler and his students last time. I might not be able to prevent the Earl King's arrival. If that happens, someone has to stop the heirs directly. I can't do it. The wardens can. It's as simple as that. Okay, he said. But that doesn't explain why I can't stick with you. Because to them you're just a white-court vampire, Thomas, with whom I am supposed to be at war. If they learn that you're my brother, it might give the people in the council, who don't like me, grounds to question my loyalty. And even if they believe that I'm not acting against the council or being controlled by you, they'd still be suspicious of you. They'd want assurances that you were on their team. They'd use me, he said quietly, and use me against you. They'd use us both against each other, which is why you can't be around when they show. Thomas turned and studied my face carefully. What about Murphy? If you call in the council, Mavra will screw up her life. I chewed on my lip a little. Murphy wouldn't want me to put innocence in danger to protect her. If one of the heirs turns into some kind of dark god, people are going to die. She wouldn't forgive me for protecting her if that was the cost, I said. Besides, this isn't about recovering the word. This is about stopping the heirs. I can still get the book to Mavra and fulfill our bargain. Thomas took a deep breath. Is that wise? I don't know. She's not exactly alive. I doubt Kemmler's techniques would apply to her use of magic. If they didn't, Thomas said, then why would she want the book? Which was a damned good question. I rubbed at my eyes. All I know is that I've got to stop the heirs, and I've got to protect Murphy. If the council finds out that you're planning on using them to defeat the heirs so that you can give Kemmler's book to a vampire of the Black Court, you'll be in trouble. Not for long, I said. The wardens will execute me on the spot. God, and you can accept that from your own people? I'm acclimated, I said. We were quiet for a moment. You want me to sit this out, Thomas said. You don't want me to help. I don't see that I have much choice, I told him. Do you? You could just leave this whole thing. We could head for Aruba or something. I looked at him. Okay, he said. You won't, but a guy can hope. I just don't like the idea of sitting on the sidelines when you might need my help. He frowned. Hey, you're doing this on purpose. You're trying to keep me out of it to protect me, you... Sneaky little bitch. It works out that way, I said, 
Think of it as payback for those painkillers. He grimaced at me, then nodded. And thank you, I said quietly. You were right. I needed the rest. Of course I was right, Thomas said. You looked like you were about to pass out. You still don't look great. I'm hungry. Did you make those pancakes for breakfast, or are they only decorative? Go ahead and mock, Thomas said. He slapped a bunch of pancakes onto a plate and brought it over to the table, along with a plastic bottle of maple syrup. Here, happy birthday. I blinked at the pancakes and then up at him. I'd have gotten you a present, but... He shrugged. No, I said. I mean, no, that's okay. I'm surprised you remembered it all. No one has remembered my birthday since Susan left town. Thomas got himself a plate and left the rest on a third plate for Butters. He sat down at the table and started eating them without syrup. Don't make a big thing of it. I'm sort of surprised I remembered it myself. He nodded at the world in general. So you think Gravain and the corpse taker are the ones who turned the lights out? I shook my head. They were both stretching themselves by keeping so many undead under their control. That's why the corpse taker went after Gravain with a sword and why he defended himself physically. Then who did it? Cow. I said. He made himself scarce last night. My guess is that he was too busy setting it up to take a swing at Gravain or the corpse taker. Why cow? Because this is a major hex, man. If you'd have asked me yesterday, I wouldn't have thought this was possible. I don't know how he did it, but... I shivered. His magic is stronger than mine. And from what I saw of his technique, he's a hell of a lot more skilled, too. If he's as good at thaumaturgy as he is at evocation, he's the most dangerous wizard I've ever seen. I'm not sure how he did it matters as much as why, Thomas said. I nodded. He gets a lot of advantages, paralyzes human power structures, keeps cops and so on too busy to interfere with whatever they're doing. But that's not the only reason. You said something about preparing the way? Yeah, I finished a large bite of syrupy pancake goodness. Black magic is tied in pretty closely with a lot of negative emotions, especially fear. So, if you do something that scares a whole lot of people, you get an environment that is better for black magic. This stunt is going to cause havoc, make a lot of people worry. It will help with the air's major mojo tonight. You're sure it's tonight? I nodded. Pretty much. It's Halloween. The barriers between the mortal world and the spirit world are at their weakest. They'll be able to call up the most spirits to devour tonight. All the acts of black magic they've been working around town were also part of that preparation, creating spiritual turbulence, making it easier to use larger and larger amounts of black magic. Thomas ate several bites while he listened. Then he said, How are you going to contact the council with the phones out? Alternative channels, I said. I'll call up a messenger. Meanwhile... Thomas said, his voice a little bitter. I will stay here and do nothing. No, you won't, I said, because you're going to be figuring out where they'll call up the most old spirits. Not only that, but I'm leaving you a copy of Boney Tony's code numbers. Figure out what they mean. He toyed with a bit of pancake. Old spirits would come from a graveyard, right? Probably, I said, but sometimes they can get attached to possessions instead of a specific location. See what you can find out about Native American burial grounds or ruins. That's the right age bracket for what the heirs want. 
Okay, Thomas said, without much confidence. And you want me to figure out the numbers, too? With Butters, I said. He can help you on both counts. He's damn smart. Assuming he wants to help, Thomas said. He might want to cash in his chips and get out of this game while he's still alive. If he does, then you'll be on your own, I said. But I don't think he will. Just then, the kitchen door opened and Butters came in with a panting mouse. The big dog padded over to me and nudged my hand with his nose until I scratched him in his favorite spot just behind one notched ear. Don't think who will what, Butters asked. Oh, hey, pancakes. Are there any for me? Counter, Thomas said. Cool. Butters, I said. Look, I think you're going to be all right on your own now. If you want me to, I'll take you home after breakfast. He peered owlishly at me and said, Of course I want to go home. The Oktoberfest polka off is tonight. Thomas arched an eyebrow at me. Butters looked back and forth between us and said, Do you need me to do something? Maybe, I said. There's some research to be done. I totally understand if you want to get while the getting's good. But if you're willing, we could use your help. Research, Butters said. What kind of research? I told him. Butters chewed on his lip. Is it... is anything going to try to kill me for doing it? I don't think so, I said, but I can't lie to you. These are some dangerous people. I can't predict everything they might do. Butters nodded. But... if you don't get this information, what happens? It gets harder to stop them. And if you don't stop them, what happens? I put my fork down, suddenly not very hungry. One of them gets phenomenal cosmic power and all the living space he can take. I get killed, so will a lot of innocent people. And God only knows what someone could do with power like that over the long term. Butters looked down at his pancakes. I waited. Thomas said nothing. His appetite hadn't been affected, and the sound of his knife and fork on the plate was the only one in the kitchen. This is bigger than me, he said finally. It's bigger than polka, even. So I guess I'll help. I smiled at him. Appreciate it. Thomas looked up, studying Butters speculatively. Yeah? Butters nodded and grimaced. If I walk away when I know I could lend a hand, I'm not sure I could live with that. I mean... If you were asking me to shoot somebody or something, I'd head for the hills. But research is different. I can do research. I rose and clapped Butters gently on the shoulder. Thomas will fill you in. Where are you going? he asked. I have to figure out how to call up the Earl King, I said. Is that why everyone wanted that book? Apparently. But you had it. Heck, you read it. I rubbed at my eyes. Yeah, I know but I didn't know exactly what I was looking for. Butters nodded. Frustrating, huh? Just a bit. It's too bad you don't have a photographic memory, Butters said. I knew a guy in college with one of those, the bastard. He could just look at a page and then read it back to himself in his head a week later. A thought struck me hard, and I felt my limbs twitch with sudden excitement. What did you say? Uh, you don't have a photographic memory? Butters asked. Yes, I said. Butters, you are a genius. I am, he said. Then his brow furrowed in puzzlement. I am? 
Brilliant, I said, certifiably. Oh, good. I rose and started gathering my things. Where's that backpack I had you wear? Living room, Butters said. Why? You might need it. I limped out to the living room and got the backpack. I touched it lightly and felt the solid curve of Bob the Skull within. I got my coat and my car keys and headed for the back door. Where are you going? Thomas asked. Gumshoeing, I said. You shouldn't go alone. Probably not, I agreed, but I am. At least take mouse, Thomas said. The big dog tilted his head quizzically, looking back and forth between Thomas and me. And hold his leash in my teeth, I said. I've only got the one hand to work with. Thomas frowned and then rolled a shoulder in a shrug. Okay. The phones are apparently unreliable, I said. I tossed the backpack at Thomas. He caught it. Bob will know how to reach me if you find something. Got that, Bob? A muffled voice from the backpack said, Gavol, Herr Commandant. Butters jumped halfway out of his chair and made a squeaking sound. What was that? Explain it to him, I told Thomas. I'll be in touch as soon as I can. My brother nodded at me. Good luck. Be careful. You too. Keep your eyes open. Thanks again, Butters. Sure, sure. See you soon. Butters poked at the backpack with his fork. Hey! Bob protested from inside the pack. Stop that! You'll scratch it all up! I swung out the door. The night's rest had done me good, and realizing how it might be possible to stop the airs of Kemmler had given me an electric sense of purpose. I strode to the car, barely feeling my aching leg. I turned my hand over and regarded Sheila's phone number written on it in black marker. I didn't have a photographic memory, but I knew someone who did. Chapter 27 I went to my office. Traffic wasn't as bad as it could have been. It looked like the commuters hadn't poured into town in the usual volume. The traffic lights were out, but there were cops at most of the problem intersections, and everyone seemed to be driving slowly and reasonably during the crisis. That's what they were calling it on the radio, the crisis. There were a lot more people than usual out and about on the street, and with far less of the usual brisk, business-like manner. All in all, it was about the best reaction to the situation you could hope for. It seemed like people could go one of two ways. Either they freak out and start rioting, or they actually act like human beings in trouble ought to and look out for one another. When L.A. blacked out, there had been big-time rioting. In New York, people had pulled together. It was just as well that people hadn't reacted quite so blindly as they might have. Without even trying, I could feel the slow, sour tension of black magic pulsing and swirling through the city. With the subtle influence of all that dark energy behind it, even a mild panic could have turned ugly and fast. Of course, it wasn't dark yet. Nightfall could change things. As advanced as mankind likes to think it is, we all have that age-old, primal, undeniable dread of darkness of being unable to see danger coming. We don't like to think that we're afraid of the dark anymore, but if that's true, then why do we work so hard to make sure our cities are constantly lit? We cloak ourselves in so much light that we can barely see the stars at night. Fear is a funny thing. In the right light, even tiny and insignificant fears can suddenly grow, swelling up to monstrous proportions. 
with the black magic rolling around the way it was, that instinctive fear of the dark would feed upon itself, doubling and redoubling, and with no explanation to tell them why the lights hadn't come on, people would start to forget their carefully rational reasons not to be afraid in favor of panic. Even assuming I prevented a brand spanking new dark godling from arising, tonight could be bad. It could be very bad. I got to my office and tried to call Sheila's number. The phones weren't cooperating with me, which hardly came as a surprise. They rarely worked perfectly on the best of days. I kept a copy of a reverse phone book at my office, though, and I found the address of her Cabrini Green apartment. While it wasn't as bad as it had been in the past, it wasn't exactly the best part of town, either. I had a brief pang of longing for the gun I'd lost in the alley behind Box Place. It wasn't that the gun was more effective than other things I could do to defend myself, but it was a hell of a lot more of a deterrent to the average Chicago thug than a carved stick. Just for fun, I tried the phones again, dialing my contact number for the nearest outpost of the wardens. So help me God, the phone rang. Yes, answered a woman with a low, roughened voice. I fumbled my little notebook of security phrases out of my duster's pocket. Uh, one second, I said. I didn't think the call would go through. I flipped the little notebook open to the last page and said, Uh, chartreuse Sirocco. Rabbit, answered the voice. I checked the notebook. It was the countersign. This is Wizard Dresden, I said. I have a code wolf situation here. Repeat, code wolf. The woman on the other end of the phone hissed. This is Warden Lucio, Wizard. Holy crap, the boss herself. Anastasia Lucio was one of the next in line for a seat on the senior council and was the commander of the wardens. She was one tough old bird, and she was the field commander of the council's forces in the war with the Red Court. Warden Lucio, I said respectfully, both because she probably deserved it and because I needed to get along with her as well as I possibly could. What is the situation? she asked. At least three apprentices to the necromancer Kemmler are here in Chicago, I said. They found the fourth book. They're going to use it tonight. There was a stunned silence from the other end of the phone. Hello, I said. Are you sure? Lucio asked. Her voice had a faint Italian accent. How do you know who they are? All those zombies and ghosts were sort of a giveaway, I said. I confronted them. They identified themselves as Gravain, Cowl, and Capio Corpus, and they each had a drummer with them. Dio, Lucio said. Do you know where they are? Not yet, but I'm working on it, I said. Can you help? Affirmative, Lucio said. We will dispatch wardens to Chicago immediately. They will arrive at your apartment within six hours. Might not be the best place, I said. I was attacked there last night, and my wards got torn apart. The apartment may be under surveillance. Understood. Then we will rendezvous at the alternate location. I checked the notebook. I'd have to meet them at McAnally's. Gotcha, I said. Que cosa? she asked. Uh, understood, warden, I said. Six hours, alternate location. Don't skimp on the personnel either. These folks are serious. I am familiar with Kemmler's disciples, she said, though her tone was more one of agreement than reprimand. I will lead the team myself. 
Six hours. Right, six hours. She hung up the phone. I settled it back onto its cradle, lips pursed in thought. Hell's bells. The war captain of the White Council herself was to take the field. That meant that this situation was being regarded as an emergency tantamount to a terrorist with an armed nuclear bomb. If the head warden was coming out to battle, it meant that the wardens were going to pull out all the stops. I was going to have a lot of help for a change. Help that held me in deadly suspicion, and who might execute me if they learned some of my secrets, but help nonetheless. I felt an odd sense of comfort. The wardens had been one of my biggest fears, practically since I had learned about their existence. There was something deeply satisfying about seeing the object of that fear take a hostile interest in Gravain and company. Like when Darth Vader turns against the Emperor and throws him down the shaft. There's nothing quite so cool as seeing someone who scares the hell out of you go at an enemy. And then a disturbing thought occurred to me. Why in hell was the war captain of the White Council answering the freaking phones? Why wasn't a junior member of the wardens doing the receptionist work? I could think of only a couple or three reasons. None of them were pleasant. My brief flash of relief and confidence melted away. Good thing it did, too. I'm sure the world would come to an end if I were allowed to feel a sense of relief and well-being for any length of time. I shoved my worry out of my head. It wasn't going to help anything. The only one I could count on to ride to my rescue was me. If the wardens managed to do it anyway, it would be a nice surprise, but I had to get myself moving before the problem started looking too big. It was the same principle as cleaning a really messy room— you don't think about everything you have to do. You focus on one thing and get it done, then move on to the next. I needed the summons that was hidden in Der Erlking. To get that, I had to talk to Sheila. Right, Harry. Get a move on. I tried the phone once more, but I guess I'd already won the functional tech lottery. All circuits were busy. I hadn't been sitting down very long but it was long enough for my leg to make it clear to the rest of my body that it didn't want to be walked on anymore today. Get with the program, I told my legs severely. You don't have to be happy about it, but I need you functional. My leg sat there in sullen silence and throbbed, which I took as an assent. I reached for my keys and then heard a soft sound at my office door. I whirled my staff into my hand, calling up my will, and the runes were already smoldering with sullen orange light when the door opened. Billy stood in the doorway, his expression frozen in surprise, his mouth open. He was wearing jeans, cowboy boots, and an old leather jacket. He hadn't worn his glasses much over the past several years, but he had them on today. His hair had been mussed by the wind, which sighed against my office windows. I heard a few drops of rain begin to fall, striking with dull taps on the glass. Um, he said after a minute. Hi, Harry. I scowled at him and lowered the staff, letting the power ease out of it. The warmed wood felt good under my hand, and the faint scent of wood smoke lay on the air. Bad time to be appearing suddenly in my office door, I said. Next time I'll whistle or something, Billy replied. How'd you find me? It's your office. He looked around the place. You talking to someone? Not really, I said. What do you need? He opened his coat. 
The handle of a gun protruded from his belt, my revolver. Artemis Bach came by my place. He said there was some trouble at his store. Yeah, I said. Bad guys were trying to rough him up. I argued with him about it. Billy nodded. That's what he said. He found this in the alley outside. He said there was blood. One of them clipped my leg, I said. I got it taken care of. Billy nodded, worried. Um, he was worried about you. I'm fine. I stood up, careful about my leg. Bach okay? Um, Billy said. He looked at me, his expression clearly concerned. Yeah, not hurt, I mean. Some damage to the store, which he said he didn't mind. He wanted me to thank you for him. He pulled the gun out of his belt and said, And I thought you might need this. Shouldn't carry it in your pants like that, I said. Good way to sing soprano. It's empty, he said, and offered me the handle of the gun. I took it, flipped the cylinder open, and checked it. The gun wasn't loaded. I slid it into the pocket of my duster, then opened the drawer of my desk and took out a small box of ammunition I kept there. I put it in the pocket along with the gun. Thanks for bringing that by, I said. Why'd you come looking here? You didn't answer the phone at your place. I went by there. It looked like someone tried to tear the door off. Someone did, I said. But you're all right? There was a little more weight on the question than I would have expected. I'm fine, I said, getting impatient. Hell's bells, Billy. If you've got something to say, go ahead and say it. He inhaled deeply. Uh, well, I'm sort of afraid to. I arched a brow at him and scowled again. Look, you aren't acting right, Harry. Meaning? I asked. Meaning not like yourself, Billy said. People have been noticing. People? I asked. My leg pounded. I had no time for this kind of psychological patty cake. What people? People who respect you, he said carefully. Maybe who are even a little bit afraid of you. I just stared at him. I don't know if you know this, Harry, but you can be a really scary guy. I mean, I've seen what you can do, and even the people who haven't seen themselves have heard stories. Believe me, we're all glad you're one of the good guys, but if you weren't... What? I said, suddenly feeling more tired. If I wasn't, then what? You'd be scary. Really scary. Get to your damn point, I said quietly. He nodded. You've been talking to things. Excuse me? He lifted his hands. Talking to things. I mean, you were talking to things when I was outside your door. That was nothing, I said. Okay, Billy said, though his tone suggested that he was placating me rather than agreeing. What's this talking to things crap? Did Bach say I was doing that? Harry, Billy said. Because I wasn't, I said. Good God, I do some crazy crap, but it's usually the this is never going to work, but I have to try it variety of crazy. I'm not insane. Billy folded his arms, his eyes searching my face. See, that's the thing. If you were truly insane, would you be able to realize it? I rubbed at the bridge of my nose. So let me get this straight. Because Bach said something about me, and because you heard me talking to myself, suddenly I'm ready for the room with rubber walls. No, he said. Sort of. Harry, look, 
It isn't like I'm trying to accuse. That's funny, because it sounds like an accusation from this end, I said. I only... I slammed my staff down on the floor, and Billy flinched. He tried to cover it, but I had seen the motion. Billy flinched like he was genuinely afraid that I was going to hurt him. What the hell? Billy, I said quietly. There is some bad business going on. I don't have time for this. I don't know what Bach told you, but he's had a bad couple of days. He's rattled. I'm not going to hold anything against him. All right, he said quietly. I want you to go home, I told him, and I want you to start sending out word around to the in crowd. Everyone wants to be behind a threshold tonight. He frowned and took off his glasses, scrubbing at them with a the corner of his shirt. Why? Because the White Council is sending a war party to town. You don't want anyone you know to get caught in the backwash. Billy swallowed. This is big, then? And I have to get moving. I don't have time for distractions. I stepped forward and put my hand on his shoulder. Hey, it's me, Harry. I'm as sane as I ever am, and I need you to trust me for a little while. Tell people to keep their heads down, okay? He took a deep breath and then nodded sharply. I'll do it, man. Good. I don't know why you're so worried about me, but we'll sit down and talk after the dust settles. Figure out what's up. Make sure I haven't stripped a gear when I wasn't looking, I promise you. Right, he said, nodding. Thank you. I'm sorry if this is a... Oh, hell, man. Enough with sharing the emotions, I said. We're going to turn into women as we stand here. Get a move on. He chucked my arm with a mostly closed fist and left. I waited for him to go. I didn't feel like riding down in the elevator with him, wondering if he was afraid of me suddenly turning on him with an axe or a butcher knife or something. I leaned on my staff and thought about it for a second. Billy was really worried about me. Worried enough that he was afraid that I might do something to him. What the hell had I done to set that off? And an even better question, which I had to ask myself, followed on the heels of that first one. What if he was right? I poked at my skull with a finger. It didn't feel soft or anything. I didn't feel insane. But if you'd really lost it, would you have enough left upstairs to know? Crazy people never thought they were crazy. I've always talked to things, I said, and to myself. Good point, myself agreed with me, unless that means you've been nuts all along. I don't need wise-ass remarks, I told myself severely. There's work to do, so shut up. All I could think was that it had been George's idea. She was always buried to the ears in her psych textbooks. Maybe she had fallen victim to some kind of inverted psychological hypochondria or something. Thunder rumbled outside, and the rain started coming down harder. I didn't need any doubts distracting me right now. I shrugged off the whole conversation with Billy, tabling it for later. I loaded my gun, since not loading it would have been almost as good as not having it, then slipped it back into my pocket, locked up my office behind me, and headed for the car. I had to get to Sheila and see if her remarkable memory could call up the poems and stanzas from that stupid book. And then I had to figure out how to call up a wild and deadly lord of the darker realms of fairy and sidetrack him so that the heirs of Kemmler couldn't use him to promote themselves to demigod status. 
And along the way, I had to find the word of Kemmler and get it to Mavra somehow, without the White Council learning what I was up to. Easy as breathing. As I rode down in the elevator, I had to admit that Billy might have a point. Chapter 28 The Cabrini-Green tenement Sheila lived in had seen better days, but it had seen worse, too. The city had dumped a lot of money into urban renewal projects there, and it was an ongoing process. Sheila's building was still undergoing renovation, and the lobby and many of the floors were only half-finished. No workmen were in the building when I went into the lobby, but there were dozens of tarps, stacks of drywall and raw lumber, heavy tool lockers that had been bolted to the floor, and other evidence of the contractors who would doubtless have been working had the city's lights not been out. I walked over to the elevators and to the security panel there and found the button of Sheila's apartment on the ninth floor. I pressed it and held it down for a minute before I realized that, duh, the power was out and I wasn't going to be able to ring her apartment. I grimaced and looked around for the stairs. Nine flights up on my leg wasn't going to feel nice, but it wasn't as though I had an infinite number of options. The door to the stairs was locked, but it was a standard fire door with a push bar on the other side. I lifted my staff, looked around the lobby to make sure no one had wandered in to see me, and then gestured with the staff and murmured, Forzare. I sent a bare whisper of my power through the door and then drew it back toward me with a sharp gesture. I caught the push bar on the other side with it, and the door trembled and then swung open by an inch or two. I thrust the end of my staff into it to hold it open, then grabbed it and heaved. I stared at the stairs for a second, but they didn't get any shorter or turn into an escalator or anything, so I sighed and started painfully hauling myself up them one step at a time. Nine floors and 162 steps later, I paused to catch my breath, and then opened the door to the ninth-floor hallway in the same manner I had the one in the lobby. The ninth-floor hallway was still under construction, and several of the apartments in it were missing doors and even walls. I limped along until I found Sheila's apartment and then knocked on the door. I felt a tingling tension over the door as I touched it, a magical ward of some kind. It was nowhere near as strong as the ones on my apartment had been, but it was stable. That was fairly impressive. Sheila might not have a ton of inborn talent, but she evidently had enough discipline to offset the lack. I held my hand out lightly, just over the surface of the door, sending my senses running over the ward, getting more of a feel for its strength. It couldn't have stopped me if I used my power to force my way in, but it felt strong enough to give me a solid kick in the teeth if I tried it physically. It would certainly scare the hell out of a would-be burglar. Not bad. After a minute, I heard footsteps, and the door opened a little. I could see a security chain and a slender stripe of her face that included one of Sheila's dark, sparkling eyes. She let out a surprised little sound and then said, Harry, just a minute. I waited while she shut the door and took off the security chain. Then she opened the door again, smiling at me. She had an infectious smile, and I found myself answering it with one of my own. She was dressed in a scarlet sequined bodice that made her chest into something very difficult not to stare at, nearly translucent baggy leggings, leather sandals that wrapped around her calves, 
and 6.5 million pounds of bangles on her arms and ankles. Her hair had been caught up in a high ponytail, fixed into place to rise over some kind of mesh headdress, and her smooth, bare shoulders looked lovely and strong. Hi, she said. Hi, I said back. Is your roommate Sheila in, Jeannie? She laughed. You caught me in the nick of time. I was just about to leave to get together with some people I know. Costume party? I asked. No, I dress like this all the time. Her eyes sparkled. It is Halloween. Even with the lights out? She bobbed her brows, her smile wicked for a second. Who knows? That might make it more fun. I had been right about the curves that had been hidden under her loose clothing back at Box. They were awfully pleasant ones. It was an effort of will to stay focused on her face, especially when she laughed. Her laugh made all sorts of interesting little quivers run over her. Do you have a minute? I asked. Maybe even two, she said. What did you have in mind? I need your help with something, I said. I looked up and down the hallway. As far as I knew, I hadn't been followed, and I'd been watching my back, but that didn't mean that no one was there. I was pretty good at noticing such things, but there were plenty of people and non-people who were better than me. If you don't mind, can we talk about it inside? Her expression became a little wary, and she looked up and down the hall herself. Are you in trouble? Is this about the people at the store? Pretty much, I said. May I come in? Of course, of course, she said, and stepped back inside, holding the door open for me. I limped in. Oh, my God, she said, staring at me as I came in. What happened? A ghoul threw a knife into my leg, I told her. She blinked at me. You mean a real ghoul? An actual ghoul? Yeah. Her face twisted up with dismay. Oh, wow. I've heard stories, but I never thought. You know, it's hard to believe they're really out there. Does that make me an idiot? No, I said. It makes you lucky. If I never see another ghoul, it'll be too soon. Her apartment was pretty typical of the kind. Small, worn, run-down, but clean. She had mostly second-hand furniture, an ancient old fridge, mismatched bookshelves that overflowed with paperbacks and textbooks, and a tiny aged television that looked as if it didn't get much use. Sit down, she said, picking up a couple of blankets and a throw pillow from the couch, clearing off a space for me. I tottered over to the couch and sat, which felt entirely too good. I grunted and got my leg elevated onto the coffee table, and it felt even better. Thanks, I said. She shook her head, staring at me. You look frightful. Been a tough couple of days. She studied me with serious eyes. I suppose it must have been. What are you doing here? The book, I said. The one on the Earl King that I got from Bach. I remember, she said. Exactly. Uh, what? That's why I'm here, I said. You remember, but I don't. And the bad guy stole my copy. I need you to remember it for me. She frowned. The whole thing? I don't think so, I said. There were several poems and stanzas in there. I think what I need is in one of them. What do you need, she said. I stared at her for a second, then I said, It might be better if you don't know. She lifted her chin and regarded me for a moment, as if I'd just said something bad about her mother. Excuse me? 
This is some bad business, I said. It might be safer for you if I don't tell you much about it. Well, she said, that's quite patronizing of you, Harry. Thank you. I held up a hand. It isn't like that. Yes, she said, it is. You want me to give you information, but you won't tell me why or what you're going to do with it. It's for your own protection, I said. Perhaps, she replied. But if I give you this information, I'm going to bear some responsibility for what you do with it. We don't know each other very well. What if you took the information I gave you and used it to hurt someone? I won't. And maybe that's true, she said. But maybe it isn't. Don't you see? I have an obligation in this matter, she said, to use my talent responsibly. That means not using it blindly or recklessly. Can you understand that? Actually, I said, I can. She pursed her lips and then nodded. Then if you want me to help you, tell me why you need it. You could be put at risk if you become involved in this, I said. It could be very dangerous. I left a clear silence between the last two words for emphasis. I understand, she said. I accept that, so tell me. I stared at her for a second and then sighed, a little frustrated. She had a point, after all. But damn it, I didn't want to see anyone else get hurt because of Kemmler's disciples, particularly not anyone with such lovely breasts. I jerked my eyes away from them and said, The people you've seen around the store are going to use the book to call up the Earl King. She frowned. But he's an extremely powerful fairy, yes? Can they do that? Do you mean, is it possible? I asked. Sure. I whistled up Queen Mab a few hours ago myself, which was technically the truth. Oh, she said, her tone mild. Why? Because I needed information, I said. No, not that. Why are these people calling up the Earl King? They're going to use his presence on Halloween night to call up an extra-large helping of ancient spirits. Then they're going to bind and devour those spirits in order to give themselves a Valhalla-sized portion of supernatural power. She stared at me, her mouth opening a little. It's a rite of ascension, she whispered. A real one? Yeah, I said. But that's... that's insane. So are these people, I said. What you tell me could stop it from happening. It could save a lot of lives, not least of which is my own. She folded her arms over her stomach as if chilled. Her face looked pale and worried. I need the poems because I'm going to summon the Earl King before they can do it and make sure that I sidetrack him long enough to ruin their plans. Isn't that dangerous? she asked. Not as dangerous as doing nothing, I said. So now you know why. Will you help me? She fretted her lower lip as though mulling it over, but her eyes were sparkling. Say please. Please, I said. Her smile widened. Pretty, please? Don't push me, I half-growled, but I doubt it came out very intimidating. She smiled at me. It might take me a few minutes. I haven't looked at that book in some time. I'll have to prepare, meditate. Is it that complicated? I asked. She sighed, the smile fading. There's so much of it. Sometimes my head feels like a library. 
I don't have a problem remembering. It's finding where I've put it that's a challenge. And not all of it is very pleasant to remember. I know what that's like, I said. I've seen some things I would rather weren't in my head. She nodded and paced over to settle down on the couch next to me. She drew her feet up underneath her and wriggled a bit to get comfortable. The wriggling part was intriguing. I tried not to be too obviously interested and fumbled my notebook and trusty pencil from my duster's pocket. All right, she said and closed her eyes. Give me a moment. I'll speak it to you. Okay, I said. And don't stare at me. I moved my eyes. I wasn't. She snorted delicately. Haven't you ever seen breasts before? I wasn't staring, I protested. Of course. She opened one eye and gave me a sly, oblique glance. Then she closed her eyes with a little smile and inhaled deeply. That's cheating, I said. She smiled again, and then her expression changed, her features growing remote. Her shoulders eased into relaxation, and then her eyes opened, dark, distant, and unfocused. She stared into the far distance for several moments, her breathing slowing, and her eyes started moving as if she were reading a book. Here it is, she said, her voice slow, quiet, and dreamy. Peabody, he was the one to compile the various essays. I just need the poems, I said. No need for the cover plate. Hush, she said. This isn't as easy as it looks. Her fingers and hands twitched now and then, while her eyes swept over the unseen book. I realized after a moment that she was turning the pages of the book in her memory. All right, she said a minute later. Ready? I poised my pencil over my notepad. Ready. She started quoting poetry to me, and I started writing it down. It wasn't in the first poem or the second, but in the third one I recognized the rhythms and patterns of a phrase of summoning, each line innocent on its own, but each building on the ones preceding it. With the proper focus, intent, and strength of will, the simple poem could reach out beyond the borders of the mortal world and draw the notice of the deadly fairy hunter known as the Earl King, the Lord of Goblins. That's the one, I said quietly. I need you to be completely sure of your accuracy of recollection. Sheila nodded, her eyes far away. Her hand made a reverse of the page-turning motion she used, and she spoke the poem to me again, more slowly. I double-checked that I'd written it all down correctly. It doesn't do to mangle a summoning. If you get the words wrong, it can have all kinds of bad effects. Best-case scenario, the summoning doesn't work, and you pour all the effort into it for nothing. One step worse, a bungled summoning could call up the wrong being, maybe one that would be happy to rip off your face with its tentacle-laden, extendable maw. Finally, at the extreme end of negative consequences, the failed summons might call up the being you wanted, in this case the Earl King, only it would be insulted that you hadn't bothered to get it right. Uber-powerful beings of the spirit world had the kind of power and tempers that horror movies are made of, and it was a bad idea to get one of them mad at you. If you called up a being incorrectly, there was very little you could do to protect yourself from them. That was the job hazard of summoning. If I chanted the Earl King to Chicago, I had to be damned sure I did it correctly, or it would be worth as much as my life. Once more, I told Sheila quietly when she was finished.
I had to be sure. She nodded and began again. I checked my written version. They all came out the same for the third time in a row, so I was as sure as I reasonably could be that it was accurate. I stared at the notepad for a moment, trying to absorb the summoning, to remember its rhythm, the rolling sound of consonant and verb that were only incidentally related to language. This wasn't a poem. It was simply a frequency, a signal of sound and timing, and I committed it with methodical precision to memory, the same way I stored the precise inflections required to call upon a spirit being using its true name. In a sense, the poem was a name for the Earl King. He would respond to it in the same way. When I looked up again a few moments later, I felt the gentle pressure of Sheila's gaze. She was watching me, her eyes worried. You're either incredibly stupid or one of the most courageous men I've ever seen. Go with stupid, I said lightly. In my experience, you can't go wrong assuming stupid. If you use the summoning, she said quietly, not smiling at my tone, and something bad happens to you, I will be to blame. I shook my head. No, I said. I know what I'm doing. It will be my own damn fault. I'm not sure that your acceptance can absolve me of responsibility, she said, frowning. Is there anything else I can do to help you? There's no need to offer, I said. Yes, she said earnestly. There is. I need to know that I've done whatever I can. That if something happens to you, it won't be because of something I didn't do. I studied her face for a moment and found myself smiling. You take this whole responsibility thing very seriously, I said. Is there some reason I shouldn't? she asked. Not at all, I said. It's just unusual from someone... Well, don't take this the wrong way, but it's unusual from someone so far down the ladder when it comes to raw power. She smiled a little. It doesn't take much power to hurt someone, she said. It's far easier than healing the damage. It's always like that, for everything, not just magic. Yeah, but not many people seem to get that. I reached over and put my right hand on hers. She had very soft, very warm hands. Thank you for helping me. If there's anything I can ever do to pay you back, she smiled at me and said, There is one thing. Oh? I asked. She nodded. A friend told me once that you can tell a lot about a person from how they do things the first time. I blinked a couple of times and then said, Uh, like what? Like this, she said, and came to me. She moved beautifully, fluid and graceful and elegantly feminine. She was all warm curves and soft flesh, scented of wildflowers as she slid one leg over mine, straddling my thighs. Her gentle hands lightly framed my face as she leaned down to kiss me, her eyes rolling back and closing in anticipation as her mouth met mine. The kiss began slowly, quietly, sensuous but not impassioned, patience without hesitance. Her lips were a warm and gentle contact on mine, and there was a sense of exploration to her mouth as she felt her way around the kiss. Maybe I was just too tired or too injured or too worried about my prospects for immediate survival, but it felt good. It felt really good. Sheila's mouth wasn't inflamed with need. 
She demanded nothing with the kiss. All she wanted was to taste my mouth, to feel my skin under her hands. And then, without warning, a desperate yearning for more of that simple contact, that human warmth, roared through me in a flash fire of need. Nearly everyone underestimates how powerful the touch of another person's hand can be. The need to be touched is something so primal, so fundamentally a part of our existence as human beings, that its true impact upon us can be difficult to put into words. That power doesn't necessarily have anything to do with sex, either. From the time we are infants, we learn to associate the touch of a human hand with safety, with comfort, with love. I hadn't been touched much for, well, a long damn time. Thomas may have been my brother, but he avoided physical contact, even casual and incidental contact, like the plague. I hadn't exactly been overwhelmed with romantic interests, either. The closest thing to it I'd had of late had been the advances of a neophyte succubus, and that contact had been anything but loving. When sex becomes part of the equation, the impact of another's touch can be even more urgent and profound, so much so that good sense... Even basic logical deduction can go right out the window, washed away in a flood of needs that simply must be met. I hadn't been touched in a long time. I hadn't been kissed in even longer. Given how likely it was that I was going to die before my next sunrise, Sheila's presence, her warmth, the simple fact that she wanted to be touching me, crowded out every worry and fear, and I was glad to see them go. Sheila's kiss freed me from pain and from fear, even if only for a moment, and I wanted to hold on to that moment for as long as I possibly could. I tightened my grip on the kiss, and my good arm rose, sliding deliberately around the small of her back, pulling her toward me. Sheila let out a hiss of sudden excitement, but her kiss grew no deeper, no swifter. Her mouth stayed in its gentle rhythm, and I leaned harder into it. Her breath quickened still more, but her kiss deepened only slowly, maddeningly patient, torturously gentle. Her hips shifted in slow tension against mine, and I could feel the heat of her against me. What I wanted to do was to reach up and haul down the sequined top. I wanted my mouth to explore every sinuous curve of her. I wanted to drive her mad with need, to fill my senses with her warmth, her cries, her scent. I wanted to forget everything arrayed against me, even if it was just for a little while, and bear her an inch at a time. The emptiness that her warmth had begun to fill howled at me to let go. But what I did was open my mouth and brush my tongue over her lips, gently and slowly, and only once. She shivered at that touch, and her teeth tugged delicately at my lower lip. I drew the kiss to a slow, quiet close and bowed my head so that my forehead rested against hers. Both of us remained like that for a minute, breathing a little fast. Did you want to stop? she whispered. No, I answered. But I needed to. Why? Because you don't know me, I said. Did you want me to stop? No, she said. But I needed you to. You don't know me either. Then why kiss me? I asked. I... 
I heard a touch of something like embarrassment in her voice. It's been a long time for me since I've kissed anyone. I didn't realize how much I'd missed it. Same here. Her fingers stirred lightly, touching the sides of my face. You seem so alone. I just wanted to know what it was like, just the kiss, before anything else gets involved. That's reason enough, I agreed. What did you think of it? She made a low sound in her throat. I think I want more. <laughs> I said, agreeing. That works for me. She let out a quiet, wicked little laugh. Good. She shivered again and then drew away from me, dark eyes bright, still breathing fast enough to make her chest absolutely mesmerizing. She stood up, smiling. Is there anything else I can do to help you? Grab my staff for me. She arched a brow. I felt my cheeks flush. Uh, the literal staff. Oh, she said, and passed it to me. She watched me with quiet concern as I heaved myself to my feet, but she made no move to help me, for which my ego was entirely grateful. I hobbled over to her door, and she walked beside me. I turned to her and touched her cheek with my right hand. She leaned her face against my palm, just a little, and smiled up at me. Thank you, I told her. You're a lifesaver, probably literally. She looked down and nodded. All right. Be careful. I'll try, I told her. Try hard, she said. I'd like to see you again soon. Okay, I'll survive, but only because you asked. She laughed, and I smiled, and then I left her in her apartment and started back down the stairs to the street. Going down was a lot harder than going up had been. I made it to the third floor before I had to stop for a breather, and I sat down to rest my aching leg for a moment. So I was panting and sitting flat on my ass when the air in front of me wavered, and a dark, hooded figure stepped forward from out of nowhere, one hand extended, some sort of fine mesh that covered her outstretched palm, flickering with ugly purple light. Be very still, Dresden, Kumori said, her voice soft. If you try to move, I'll kill you. Chapter 29 Kumori stood about four feet from me, easily within reach of my staff if I wanted to strike at her, but since I was sitting down and had only one strong hand to swing the staff, I wouldn't be able to hit hard enough to disable her, even if I somehow managed to hit her before she unleashed the power she was holding in her hand. And besides, she was a girl. Unless she proved herself to be some kind of monstrous thing that just looked like a girl, I wasn't going to hit her. On some rational level, I knew my attitude was dangerously illogical, but that didn't change anything. I don't hit girls. I had the feeling she was quick enough to beat me as she stood over me with the magical equivalent of a cocked and readied gun sparkling through the metal mesh over her right palm. I could feel the air vibrating with a low, steady note of power, and her stance was both confident and wary. One thing I was pretty sure of, she was here to talk. If she'd wanted to kill me, she could have done it already. So I stayed sitting, set my staff aside very slowly, and mildly raised both hands. Take it easy there, cowgirl, I said. 
You got me dead to rights. I couldn't see her face within the depths of the hood, but I heard a dry note of amusement in her voice. Take off the bracelet, please, and the ring on your right hand. I arched a brow. The ring was spent, and probably didn't have enough juice left in it to push her back a step, but I'd never run into anyone who had noticed it before. Whoever she was, Kumori knew how wizards operated, and it made me even more sure that she was hiding her face because she was someone I might recognize, someone on the White Council. I slipped the bracelet off my left hand and lowered it slowly to the stair beside me, but getting that ring off was going to be problematic. I can't get the ring off, I said. Why not? Kumori asked. Fingers on my left hand don't work anymore, I said. What happened? I blinked at her for a second. The question had been polite. In fact, if I didn't know any better, I'd have taken her tone for actual interest. What happened to your left hand? She asked, her tone patient. I answered her as politely as I could while staring at her, trying to figure her out. I was fighting vampires. There was a fire. Burned my hand so bad the doctors wanted to take it off. There's no way I can get the ring off unless you want to come over here and take it yourself. She was still for a moment. Then she said, It might be easier if you would agree to a truce for the duration of this conversation. Are you willing to give your word on it? She wanted a truce, which meant that she had indeed come to talk rather than to execute me. There sure as hell wouldn't be any harm in agreeing to a truce, and it might prevent hostilities that could be triggered by raw nerves. In exchange for yours, I said, this conversation and half an hour after its conclusion. Done, Kumori said. You have my word. And you have mine, I said. She lowered her hand at once, taking the odd mesh over it and its sparkling energies into the deep sleeves of her robe. I didn't take my eyes off her as I reclaimed my shield bracelet and fixed it back onto my wrist. All right, I said. What did you want to talk about? The book, she said. We still want your copy. You'll have to talk to the corpse taker, I said. He and his ghoul took it from me last night. But if you go looking, he looks like a girl in her early twenties. Great dimples. The hood shifted as though Kumori had tilted her head to one side. You know of the source of the corpse-taker's name? I figure he's a body-switcher, I said. I've heard necromancers can do that kind of thing, move their consciousness from one body to another, exchange with some poor sucker who can't protect themselves. Corpse-taker was in that old professor's body. I figure he swapped with his assistant and then killed the old man's body with the girl's mind inside. The hood nodded, conceding me the point. But I have difficulty believing your story. Had the corpse-taker taken the book from you, he would have killed you as well. Wasn't for lack of trying, I said, and gestured at my leg. He was overconfident, and I was a little bit lucky. He got the book, but I got away. She was silent for a moment, and then said, her voice thoughtful, You're telling me the truth. I'm bad at lying. Lies get all confusing. Can't keep them straight. Kumori nodded. Then let me make you this offer. Join or die, I guessed. She exhaled softly through her nose.
Hardly. Cowl has a certain amount of respect for you, but he believes you too raw to make some sort of alliance feasible. Ah, I said. Then you'll probably go to the second offer I always get. Go away and you won't kill me. Something like that, Kumori said. You have no real idea of what is going on here. Your ignorance is more dangerous than you know, and your continued involvement in this matter could cause disastrous consequences. What do you want me to do? I asked. Withdraw from the field, she said. Or what? Or you will regret it, she said. That isn't a threat, simply a fact. As I said, Cowl has a certain respect for you, but he will not be able to protect you or treat you gently should you continue to involve yourself. If you stand in his way, he will kill you. He would prefer it if you stood clear. Gosh, that's so altruistic of him. I shook my head. If he kills me, he'll have my death curse to contend with. He has already contended with such curses, Kumori said, many times. I advise you to retire from the field. I can't do that, I said. I know what you people are doing. I know about the Dark Hollow. I know why you're doing it. And? And I can't let that happen, I said. Insurance in Chicago is expensive enough without adding in a petulant new deity tearing up the real estate. Our goals are not so different, Kumori said. Gravain and the corpse taker are madmen. They must be stopped. From what I've seen of old Cowl, he's a couple of french fries short of a happy meal, too. And you would do what? Kumori asked. Prevent them from reaping the bounty of the Dark Hollow? Take the power for yourself? I want to make sure nobody takes it, I said. I don't particularly care how I get it done. Truly? she asked. I nodded. Now here's where I make you an offer. She hesitated, clearly taken off guard. Very well. Bail, I told her. Leave Cowl and the sociopath squad to their squabbling. Give me what information I need to stop them. He'd kill me in a day, she said. No, I told her. I'd take you to the White Council. I'd get you protection. She stared at me from within her hood, utterly silent. See, Kumori, you're sort of a puzzle, I said, because you're working with these necromancers. In fact, I'm willing to bet you aren't bad at necromancy yourself. But you went out of your way to save someone's life the other night, and that just doesn't jive with that crowd. Doesn't it? she said. No. They're killers. Good at it, but they're just killers. They wouldn't take a step out of their way to help someone else. But you went way the hell out of your way to help a stranger. It says that you aren't like them. She was silent for a moment more. Then she said, Do you know why Cowell has made a study of necromancy? And why I have joined him? No. Because necromancy embraces the power of death just as magic embraces the power of life. And as magic can be twisted and perverted to cruel and destructive ends, necromancy can be turned upon its nature as well. Death can be warded off, as I did for the wounded man that night. Life can be served by that dark power if one's will and purpose are strong. Uh-huh, I said. 
you got involved with the darkest and most corruptive, insanity-causing forces in the universe so that you could jumpstart wounded bodies to life. She moved her hand, a sudden slashing motion. No, no, you idiot. Don't you see the potential here, the possibility to end death? Uh, end death? You will die, she said. I will die. Cowl will die. Everyone now walking this tired old world knows but one solid immutable fact. Their life will end. Yours, mine, everyone's. Yeah, I said. That's why they call us mortals, because of the mortality. Why? she asked. What? Why? she repeated. Why must we die? Because that's the way it is, I said. Why must that be the way it is, she said. Why must we all live with that pain of separation, with horrible grief, with rage and loss and sorrow and vengeance ruling the lives of every soul beneath the sky? What if we could change it? Change it, I said, my skepticism clear in my voice. Change death. Yes she said. Just poof, make it go away. What if we could, she said. Can you imagine what it would mean if mere age would not lay mankind low after his three score and ten? How much better would the world be? Can you imagine if da Vinci had continued to live, to study, to paint, to invent? that the remarkable accomplishments of his lifetime could have continued through the centuries rather than dying in the dim past. Can you imagine going to see Beethoven in concert, taking a theology class taught by Martin Luther, attending a symposium hosted by Albert Einstein? Think, Dresden. It boggles the mind. I thought about it, and she was right. Supposing for half a second that what she said might be possible, it would mean hell. It would change everything. There would be so much more time, and for everyone. Wizards lived for three or even four centuries, and to them even their own lives seemed short. What Kumori was talking about, the end of death itself, would give everyone else the same chance to better themselves that wizards enjoyed. It would, in a single stroke, create more parity between wizards and the rest of mankind than any single event in history. But that was insane. Setting out to conquer death? People died. That was a fact of life. But what if they didn't have to? What if my mother hadn't died? Or my father? How different would my life be today? Impossible. You couldn't just drive death away. Could you? Maybe that wasn't the point. Maybe this was one of those things in which the effort meant more than the outcome. I mean, if there was a chance, even a tiny, teeny chance that Kumori was right, and that the world could be so radically changed, wouldn't I be obliged to try? Even if I never reached the goal, never finished the quest, wouldn't the attempt to vanquish death itself be a worthy pursuit? Wow. This question was a big one. Way bigger than me.
I shook my head and told Kumori, I don't know about that. What I know is that I've seen the fruits of that kind of path. I saw Cowell try to murder me when I got in his way. I've seen what Gravain and the Corpse Taker have done. I've heard about the suffering and misery Kemmler caused, and is still causing today, thanks to his stupid book. I don't know about something as big as trying to murder death, but I know that you can tell a tree from what kind of fruit falls off it, and the necromancy tree doesn't drop anything that isn't rotten. Ours is a calling, Kumori said, her voice flat. A noble road. I might be willing to believe you if so much of that road wasn't paved in the corpses of innocence. I saw her head shake slowly beneath the hood. You sound like them, the council. You do not understand. Or maybe I'm just not quite arrogant enough to start rearranging the universe on the assumption that I know better than God how long life should last. And there's a downside to what you're saying, too. How about trying to topple the regime of an immortal Napoleon or Attila or Chairman Mao? You could as easily preserve the monsters as the intellectual all-stars. It can be horribly abused, and that makes it dangerous. I faced her down for a long and silent second. Then she let out a sigh and said, <sighs> I think we have exhausted the possibilities of this conversation. You sure? I asked her. The offer is still open. If you want to get out, I'll get the council to protect you. Our offer is open as well. Stand aside and no rancor will follow you. I can't, I said. Nor can I, she said. Understand that I do not wish you any particular harm, but I will not hesitate to strike you down should you place yourself in our path. I stared at her for a second, then I said, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you and Cowl and Gravain and Corpse Taker and your little drummers, too. None of you are going to promote yourself to godhood. No one is. I think you will die, she said, her tone even, without inflection. Maybe, I said, but I'm going to stop you all before I go. Tell Cowl to get out of the way now and I won't hunt him down after all of this is over. He can walk. You too. She shook her head again and said, I'm sorry we could not work something out. Yeah, I said. She hesitated. Then she asked me, her voice soft and genuinely curious. Why? Because this is what I have to do, I said. I'm sorry you aren't going to let me help you. We all act as we think we must, she said. I will see you by and by, Dresden. Count on it, I said. Kumori left without another word, gliding silently down the stairs and out of sight. I sat there for a moment, aching and tired and more scared than I had sounded a minute before. Then I got up, shoved my pain and my fear aside, and hobbled out to the Blue Beetle. I had work to do. Chapter 30 I went back to my car, got in, and headed out to find a few things I would need to make the summoning of the Earl King marginally less suicidal. Serious summoning spells have to be personalized, 
both to the entity to be summoned and to the summoner, and it took me a little while to find enough open businesses to get it all. Traffic on the streets grew steadily worse as the afternoon wore on, slowing me down even further. More ominous than that, the tenor of the city had begun to slowly, steadily change. What had been an atmosphere of bemused enjoyment of an unanticipated holiday from the daily grind had turned into annoyance. As the sun tracked across the sky and the power still hadn't come back on, annoyance started turning into anger. By high noon, there were police visible on every street, in cars, on motorcycles, on bicycles, and on foot. That all for you? asked an enterprising vendor. He was a pot-bellied, balding gardener, selling fresh fruit and vegetables from the back of a pickup on a corner, and he was the only one I'd seen who wasn't trying to gouge Chicagoans in their moment of trial. He put the pumpkin I'd chosen in a thin plastic bag, as he did, and took the money I offered him. That's everything, I said. Thanks. Shouting broke out somewhere nearby, and I looked up to see a whip-thin young man sprinting down the sidewalk across the street. A pair of cops chased him, one of them shouting at his uselessly squealing radio. Christ, look at that, the vendor said. Cops everywhere. Why do you need the cops everywhere if this is just a power outage? They're probably just worried about someone starting a riot, I said. Maybe, the vendor said, but I hear some crazy things. Like what? I asked. He shook his head. That terrorist blew up the power plant, or maybe set off some kind of nuke. They can disrupt electronics and stuff, you know. I think someone might have noticed a nuclear explosion, I said. Oh, sure, he said. But hell, maybe somebody did. Practically no phones, radio is damn near useless. How would we know? I don't know, the big boom, the vaporized city? The vendor snorted. <laughs> true, true, but something happened. Yeah, I said, something happened. And the whole damn city is getting scared. The vendor shook his head as more shouting broke out farther down the block. A police car, lights and sirens wailing, tried to bull through the traffic to move toward the disturbance without much success. Getting worse, the vendor observed. This morning it was all smiles, but people are getting afraid. Halloween, I said. The vendor glanced at me and shivered. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe just because it's getting darker, clouding over. People get spooked sometimes, just like cattle. If they don't get the lights on, tonight might be bad here. Maybe, I said. I juggled the bag with my staff, trying to work out how to carry them both back down the street to the beetle. Here, yeah, said the vendor. I'll help you, son. Thank you, I told him. Though, to be honest, I felt embarrassed that I actually wanted his help, much less needed it. That old bug there. He walked the fifty feet down the sidewalk with me. He dropped off the sack in the front-end trunk of the VW, nodded at me, and said, About time I got my old self out of here anyway, I think. Getting tense around here. Thunderstorms coming in. Newspaper weatherman said it was supposed to be clear, I said. The vendor snorted and tapped his nose. I lived around this old lake all my life. There's a storm coming. Boy, was there. In spades. He nodded to me. You should get home. Good night to stay in and read a book. That sounds nice, I agreed. Thanks again. I nudged the beetle out into traffic by virtue of being more willing to accept a fender bender than anyone else on the road. I had everything I needed to try to whistle up the Earl King. 
but it had eaten up a lot of my day. I'd tried to call Murphy's place every time I'd stopped the car, but I never got a line through to Thomas and Butters, and now, with the afternoon sun burning its way down toward the horizon, I had run out of daylight. It was time to rendezvous with the wardens, so I headed for McAnally's. Mac's tavern was tucked in neatly beneath one tall building and surrounded by others. You had to go down an alley to get to the tavern, but at least it had its own dinky parking lot. I managed to find a spot in the lot and then limped down the alley to the tavern, taking the short flight of steps down to the heavy wooden door. I opened the door onto a quiet buzz of... Times of supernatural crisis, McAnally's became a sort of functional headquarters for gossip and congregation. I understood why. The tavern was old, lit by a dozen candles and kerosene lamps, and smelled of wood smoke and the steaks Mac cooked for his heavenly steak sandwiches. There was a sense of security and permanence to the place. Thirteen wooden pillars each one hand-carved with all manner of supernatural scenes and creatures, held up the low ceiling. Ceiling fans that normally turned in lazy circles were not moving now, thanks to the power outage, but the actual temperature of the bar was unchanged. There were thirteen tables scattered out irregularly around the room and thirteen stools at the long bar. The whole layout of the place was meant to disperse and divert dangerous or destructive energies that might accompany any grouchy wizard types into the tavern. Nothing major. It was just a kind of well-planned feng shui that cut down on the number of accidents bad-tempered practitioners of the arts might inadvertently inspire. But that dispersal of energies did a little something to ward off larger magical forces as well. It wasn't going to protect the place from a concentrated magical attack— McAnally's wasn't a bomb shelter. It was more like a big beach umbrella, and when I came through the door, I felt a sudden relief of pressure I hadn't realized had built up. The minute I shut the door behind me, some of the fear and tension faded. The dark energies Cowell had stirred up, sliding around the tavern like a stream pouring around a small, heavy stone. A sign on the wall just inside the door proclaimed, Accorded Neutral Territory. That meant that the signatories of the Unseelie Accords, including the White Council and the Red Court, had agreed that this place would be treated with respect. No one was supposed to start any kind of conflict inside the tavern, and would be bound by honor to take outside any fight that did come up as rapidly as possible. That kind of agreement was only as good as the honor of anyone involved. But if I broke the Accords in the building, the White Council would hang me out to dry— from past experience, I assumed that the Red Court would come down on any of their folk who violated the tavern's neutrality in the same way. The tavern was crowded with members of the supernatural community of Chicago. They weren't wizards. Most of them had only a pocketful of ability. One dark-bearded man had enough skill at kinetomancy to alter the spin on any dice he happened to throw. An elderly woman at another table had an unusually strong rapport with animals— and was active in municipal animal shelter charities. A pair of dark-haired sisters who shared an uncanny mental bond played chess at one of the tables, which seemed kind of masturbatory somehow. In one of the corners, five or six wizened old practitioners, not strong enough to have joined the council, but competent enough in their own right, huddled together over mugs of ale, speaking in low tones. Mac himself glanced over his shoulder, 
He was a tall, spare man in a spotless white shirt and apron. Bald and good at it, Mac could have been any age between thirty-five and fifty. He pursed his lips upon seeing me, turned back to his wood-burning stove, and quickly finished up a pair of steaks he'd been cooking. I started limping over to the bar, and as I went, the room grew quiet. By the time I was there, the uneven thump of my staff on the floor and the sizzling of the steaks were the only sounds. Mac, I said. Someone vacated a stool, and I nodded my thanks and sat down with a wince. Harry, Mac drawled. He slipped his frying pan off the stove, slapped both steaks onto plates, and with a couple of gestures and brief movements, made fried potatoes and fresh vegetables appear on the plates, too. It wasn't magic. Mac was just a damn good cook. I glanced around the room and spoke in a voice loud enough for everyone to hear. I need some space, Mac. Some people are meeting me here shortly. I'll need several tables. A round of nervous whispers and quiet comments went through the crowd. The old practitioners in the corner rose from their table without further ado. Several of them nodded at me, and one grizzled old man growled, Good luck. The less experienced members of the supernatural crowd looked from me back to the departing seniors, uncertainty on every face. Folks, I said in general, I can't tell you what to do but I would like to request that you all think about getting home before dark. Come nightfall, you want to be behind a threshold. What's happening? blurted one of the youngest men in the room. He still had pimples. Mac eyed him and snorted. Come on, I'm a wizard. We have union rules against telling anybody anything, I said. There was a round of muted chuckles. Seriously, I can't say any more for now, I said, and I couldn't. Odds were better than good that one or more spies lurked among the patrons of the tavern, and the less information they had about White Council plans and activities, the better. Take this seriously, guys. You don't want to be outside come nightfall. Mac turned around to the bar and swept his eyes over it, his expression polite and pointed. He grunted and flicked his chin at the door, and the noise from the room rose again as people began speaking quietly to one another, getting up and leaving money on the tables as they left. Two minutes later, Mac and I were the only people left in the tavern. Mac walked around the edge of the bar and sat down next to me. He put one steak-laden dinner plate on the bar in front of me, kept the other for himself, and added a couple of bottles of his home-brewed dark ale. Mac flipped the tops off with a thumbnail. Bless your soul, Mac, I said and picked up one bottle. I held it up. Mac clinked his bottle of ale against mine, and then we both took a long drink and fell to on the steaks. We ate in silence. After a while, Mac asked, Bad? Pretty bad, I said. I debated how much I could tell him. Mac was a good guy and a long-term acquaintance and friend, but he wasn't counsel. Screw it. The man gave me steak and a beer. He deserved to know something more than that there was a threat he probably couldn't do anything about. Necromancers. Mac's fork froze on the way to his mouth. He shook his head, put his last bite of steak into his mouth, and chewed slowly. Mac never used a sentence when one word would do. Wardens? Yeah, a lot of them. He pursed his lips with a frown. Kemmler, he said. I arched an eyebrow. 
but I wasn't really surprised that he knew the infamous necromancer's name. Mac always seemed to have a pretty darn good idea about what was going on. Not Kemmler, his leftovers, but that's bad enough. Ugh. Mac finished up his plate in rapid order, then rose and started collecting money and clearing the tables in the corner farthest from the door. At some point he collected my barren plate and empty bottle and put a fresh ale down in front of me. I sipped at it, watching him. He didn't make a production of it, but he checked the short-barreled shotgun he kept on a clip behind the bar and put a pair of 1911s in unobtrusive spots behind the bar so that no matter where he stood, one of the weapons would be within easy reach. He handled them like he knew exactly what he was doing. I sipped at the ale and mused. I knew little of Mac's background. He'd opened the tavern a few years before I'd moved to Chicago. No one I'd talked to knew where he'd been before that, or what he had done. I wasn't surprised that he knew something about weapons. He'd always moved like someone who could handle himself. But since he wasn't exactly a chatterbox, most of what I knew came from observation. I hadn't the faintest idea of why or where he'd learned the business of violence. I could respect that. I had run through a few bad patches that were just as well left behind and forgotten. Mac looked up abruptly and started polishing the bar near the shotgun's clip. A second later the door opened and a warden of the White Council came in. He was a tall man, six feet and then some, and built with the solidity of an aging soldier. His lank hair had more gray in it than I remembered and was drawn back into a ponytail. His face was narrow, almost pinched, and in the absence of any other expression, he looked like he had just taken a big bite of alum-sprinkled lemon rind. The warden wore the gray cloak of his office over black fatigues. He carried a carved staff in his right hand and bore a long-bladed sword on his left hip. That much I had expected. What surprised me was how battered he looked. The warden's cloak was ripped in several spots and stained with what could have been mud, blood, and greenish motor oil. There were burn marks along the hem and several raw, ragged holes in it that might have been the results of corrosive burns. His staff looked similarly nicked and stained, and the man himself looked like a boxer after a tough tenth round. He had bruises on one cheek. His nose had been broken sometime in the past several weeks, there was an ugly line of fresh, scarlet scar tissue running from his hairline to one eyebrow, and I could see white bandages through a hole in his jacket over his left biceps. For all of that, he came through the door like a man who knew he could clear out a bar full of marines if he needed to, and his eyes settled on me at once. His mouth twisted into an even more sour frown. Wizard Dresden, he said quietly. Warden Morgan, I responded. I figured Morgan would be along with any warden sent to Chicago. It was in his area of responsibility, and he didn't like me. He'd spent a few years following me around, hoping to catch me performing black magic so that he could execute me. It hadn't happened, and the council had lifted my probation. I don't think he had ever forgiven me for that. He blamed me for other things, too, I think but I had always figured they were just excuses. Some people don't get along. Ever. Morgan and I were two of them. McAnally, Morgan said to the tavern keeper. Donald, 
Mac replied. Interesting. Hell, I'd been on the council for years, and I hadn't known Morgan's first name. Dresden, Morgan said. Have you checked for veils? If I told you I had, you'd check it yourself anyway, Morgan, I said, so I didn't bother. Of course you didn't, he said. I saw him frown a little in concentration, and then his eyes went a bit out of focus. He swept his gaze around the room, using his sight, that odd, half-surreal sense that lets wizards observe the forces of magic moving around them. A wizard's sight cuts through all kinds of veils and spells meant to disguise and distract. It's a potent ability, but it comes at a price. Anything you see through the sight stays with you, never fading in your memory, always right there for recall, as if you'd just seen it. You can't just forget something that you see. It's there for life. Morgan didn't let his gaze linger too long near Mac or myself, and then he nodded to himself and called out, Clear! The door opened, and Warden Lucio came in. She was a solid old matriarch of a woman, as tall as most men, and built like someone who did plenty of physical labor. Her hair was a solid shade of iron gray, cropped into a neat military cut. She, too, wore a warden's gray cloak, though she wore clothes suitable for hiking or camping beneath that. Jeans, cotton, flannel, boots, all in muted tones of gray and brown. She, too, carried a staff and bore a sword at her side, though hers was a slender scimitar, light and elegant. Though not as worn as Morgan's, her gear also showed evidence of recent action. Warden Lucio, I said, and rose from the barstool to incline my head to her. Wizard, she said quietly. I would have needed a high-speed camera to take in the details of her smile, but at least it was there. She nodded to me and then a little more deeply to Mac. Behind her came three more wardens. The first was a young man I vaguely recognized from a council meeting a few years back. He had naturally tanned skin, dark hair, dark eyes, and sharp-edged, classically Spanish features. I remembered him in an apprentice's brown robe back then, and covering his mouth with one hand to conceal a grin, inspired by some of my dialogue with the council's bigwigs. The brown robe was gone, and he looked like he had filled in a little since I'd first seen him, but good lord, he was younger than Billy the werewolf. He wore a gray cloak that looked reasonably clean and not at all damaged, and black fatigues beneath that. A simple straight sword hung from one hip, and was balanced on the other side by a holstered glock and, I kid you not, three round fragmentation grenades. His staff was fairly new-looking, but there were enough dents and nicks in it to make me think he had kept things from hitting him with it, and he walked with the kind of arrogant confidence you see only in people who have not yet realized their own mortality. This is a warden Ramirez, Lucio said. Ramirez? Dresden. How's it going? Ramirez said, flashing me a grin. I shrugged. You know, pretty much the usual. Two more wardens came in behind him, and they looked even younger and greener. Their cloaks and staves were immaculate, and they wore clothes and equipment so similar to Ramirez's that they qualified as a uniform. Lucio introduced the blocky young man with distant haunted eyes as Kowalski. The sweet-faced young Asian girl's name was Yoshimo. 
I limped over to Lucio and nodded at the tables Mac had set up. I hope there's room enough. When are the other wardens arriving? Lucio fixed me with a quiet, weary gaze. Then she drew her hands from beneath her cloak and held out a folded bundle wrapped in brown paper, offering it to me. Take it. I took the bundle and unwrapped it. It was a folded gray cloak. Put it on, said Lucio in her quiet, steady voice. And then every available warden will be here. Chapter 31 I stared at Lucio for a second. That's a joke, I said, right? She gave me a brief, bitter smile. Master McAnally, she said to Mac, I think we could use a round. Do you have anything decent to drink? Mac grunted and said, Got a new dark. Is it worth drinking? Lucio asked. She sounded tired, but there was a teasing tone to her voice. Mac glowered at her in answer, and she gave him a smile that was part challenge and part apology, and took a seat at one of the tables. She gestured at the table and said, Wardens, please join me. Morgan took the seat to Lucio's right, and the look he gave me could have burned holes in sheet metal. I did what I always did when Morgan did that. I eyed him right back, then dismissed him as if he weren't even there. I pulled out the chair opposite Lucio and sat. The two youngest wardens sat down, but Ramirez stayed standing until Mac had brought over bottles of his dark ale and left them on the table. He headed back over to the bar. Ramirez glanced at Lucio, and she nodded. Close the circle, please, warden. The young man drew a piece of chalk from his pocket and quickly drew a heavy line on the floor all the way around the table. He finished the circle, then touched it lightly with the forefinger of his right hand and spoke a quiet word. I felt a flicker of his will as he released a tiny bit of power into the circle. The circle closed around us in a sudden, silent tension, raising a thin barrier around us that was almost entirely impregnable to magical forces. If anyone had been trying to spy on the meeting with magic, the circle would prevent it. If anyone had left some kind of listening device nearby, the magic-saturated air within the circle would be certain to fry it within a minute. Ramirez nodded to himself and then reversed the last open chair at the table and straddled it, resting one arm on the back. Morgan slid him the last bottle of ale, and he took it in one hand. Absent friends, Lucio murmured, holding up her bottle. I could get behind that toast, the rest of us muttered. Absent friends, and we had a drink, and Lucio stared at her bottle for a moment. I waited in the pregnant silence and then said, So, making me a warden, that's a joke, right? Lucio took a second, slower taste of the ale and then arched an eyebrow at the bottle. Behind the bar again, Max smiled. It's no joke, Warden Dresden, Lucio said. As much as we all would like it to be, Morgan added. Lucio gave him a look of very gentle reproof, and Morgan subsided into silence. How much have you heard about recent events in the war? Nothing in the past several days, I said. Not since my last check-in. She nodded. I thought as much. 
The Red Court has begun a heavy offensive. This is the first time that they've concentrated their efforts on disrupting our communications. We suspect that a great many wizards never received word through our usual messengers. Then they found weaknesses in the communication lines, I said, but they waited to exploit them until it would hurt us the most. Lucio nodded. Precisely. The first attack came in Cairo, at our operations center there. Several wardens were taken, including the senior commander of the region. Alive? I asked. She nodded. Yes, which was an unacceptable threat. When vampires take you alive, it isn't so that they can treat you to ice cream. That was one of the really nightmarish facets of the war with the Red Court. If the enemy got you, they could do worse than kill you. They could make you one of their own. If they managed to turn a warden, especially one of the senior commanders, it would give them access to a treasury of knowledge and secrets, to say nothing of the fact that they would effectively gain, in many ways, a wizard of their own. Vampires didn't use magic in the same way that mortal wizards did. They tapped into the same nauseating well of power that Kemmler and those like him used. But from what I understood of it, the skills carried over. A turned wizard would be a deadly threat to the wardens, the council, and mortals alike. We never talked about it, but there was a sort of silent understanding among wizards that we would never be taken alive, and an equally silent fear that we might be. You went after them, I guessed. Lucio nodded. A major assault. Madrid, San Paulo, Alcapulco, Athens. We struck at enemy strongholds there to acquire intelligence to the whereabouts of the prisoners. Our people were being held in Belize. She waved a hand vaguely at Morgan. Our intelligence indicated the presence of the highest-ranking members of the Red Court, including the Red King himself. The Merlin and the rest of the senior council took the field with us, Morgan said quietly. That made me raise my brows. The Merlin, the leader of the senior council, was as defensive-minded as it was possible to be. He'd guided the White Council into the equivalent of a Cold War with the Red Court, with everyone moving carefully and unwilling to commit, in the hopes that it would give the war time to settle away into negotiations and some kind of diplomatic resolution. An offensive action like a full assault from the Senior Council, the seven oldest and strongest wizards on the planet, had been long overdue. What changed the Merlin's mind? I asked quietly. Wizard McCoy, Lucio said. When our people were taken, he persuaded most of the senior council to take action, including ancient Mai and the gatekeeper. That made sense. My old mentor, Ebenezer McCoy, was a member of the senior council. He had a couple of long-time friends on the council, but that didn't give him a majority vote. If he wanted to get anything done, he had to talk someone from the Merlin's block into casting their vote with him. Either that, or convince the gatekeeper, a wizard who habitually abstained from voting, to take a stand with him. If Ebenezer had convinced Ancient Mai and the gatekeeper to vote with him in favor of action, the Merlin would have little choice but to move. And just because the Merlin was a master of wards and defensive magic did not mean that he couldn't kick some ass if he needed to.
You don't get to be the Merlin of the White Council by collecting bottle caps. And Arthur Langtree, the current Merlin, was generally considered to be the most powerful wizard on Earth. I had seen for myself what Ebenezer McCoy was capable of. A couple of years ago, he had pulled an old Soviet satellite out of orbit and brought it down into the lap of Duke Ortega, the warlord of the Red Court. He'd killed a ton of vampires in doing it. He'd also killed people. He'd taken the force of life and creation and used it to wipe out the lives of mortals, victims of the Red Court's power. And it wasn't the first time he'd done it. Ebenezer, I'd learned, held an office that did not officially exist, that of the White Council's assassin. Known as the Blackstaff, he had a license to kill, as well as to break the other laws of magic when he deemed it necessary. When I learned that he was violating and undermining the same laws he taught me to obey, to believe in, it had wounded me so deeply that in some ways I was still bleeding. Ebenezer had betrayed what I believed in, but that didn't change the fact that the old man was the strongest wizard I'd ever seen in action, and he was the youngest and least powerful of the senior council. What happened? I asked quietly. There was no evidence of the presence of the Red King or his entourage, but other than that the attack went as planned. Morgan said, we assaulted the vampire's stronghold and took our people back with us. Lucio's face twisted in sudden and bitter grief. It was a lure, I said quietly, wasn't it? Yes, she said quietly. We moved out and took our wounded to the hospice in Sicily. What happened? We were betrayed, she said, and her words carried more sharp edges than a sack of broken glass. Someone within our ranks must have reported our position to the Red Court. They attacked us that night. When was that? I asked. Lucio frowned, then glanced across the table at Ramirez. Three days ago, Zulu time, Ramirez provided quietly. I've not slept, Lucio said. Between that and all the travel, I lose track. She took another drink of ale and said, the attack was vicious. They were coming for the senior council, and their sorcerers managed to cut us off from escaping into the never-never for nearly a day. We lost thirty-eight wardens that day in fighting all over Sicily. I sat there for a moment, stunned. Thirty-eight? Stars and stones. There were only about two hundred wardens on the council. Not every wizard had the kind of talent that made them dangerous in a face-to-face -face confrontation. Most of those who did were wardens. In a single day, the Red Court had killed nearly twenty percent of our fighting force. They paid for it, Morgan rumbled quietly. But they seemed almost mad to die in order to kill us. Driven. I saw four different death curses unleashed that day. I saw vampires climb over mounds of their own dead without so much as slowing down. We must have taken twenty of their warriors for every loss of our own. He closed his eyes and his sour face was suddenly masked with very real and very human grief. They kept coming. We had so many wounded, Lucio said. So many wounded. 
As soon as the senior council was able to open the ways into the Never-Never, we retreated to the paths through ferry, and we were pursued. I sat up straight. What? Morgan nodded. The Red Court followed us into the territory of the She, he said. They had to know, I said quietly. They had to know that by pressing the attack in ferry itself, they would anger the She. They've just declared war on summer and winter alike. Yes, Morgan said in a flat voice, but it didn't stop them. They attacked us as we retreated, and he glanced at Lucio as if in appeal. She gave him a firm look and said to me, They had called demons to assist them, she inhaled slowly. Not simply beasts from the Never-Never. They had gone to the Netherworld. They had called... Outsiders. I took a longer drink of Max Ale. Outsiders. Demons were bad enough, but they were at least something I was fairly familiar with. The reaches of the Never-Never, the world of spirit and magic that surrounds the mortal world, are filled with all kinds of beings. Most of them really don't give a damn about mortal affairs, and we are nothing but a remote and unimportant curiosity to them. When beings of the spirit world are interested in mortal business, it's for a good reason. The ones who like to eat us, hurt us, or generally terrify us are what wizards commonly refer to as demons, as a general term. They're bad enough. Outsiders, though, were so rarely spoken of that they were all but a rumor. I wasn't really clear on all of the details, but the outsiders had been the servants and foot soldiers of the old ones, an ancient race of demons or gods who had once ruled the mortal world, but who had apparently been cast out and locked away from our reality. There was a specific law of magic against contacting them. Thou shalt not open the outer gates. No one wanted to be the one suddenly suspected of opening ways for the outsiders to enter the mortal world. The wardens absolutely did not play around with violations of the laws of magic. Their entire purpose in life was to protect the council, first from violators of the seven laws and then from everyone else. I eyed the folded gray cloak on the table in front of me. I thought only mortal magic could call up outsiders, I said quietly. Lucio said quietly, You are correct. My stomach lurched a little. Someone had told the Red Court where to find the council. Someone had blocked off their escape route to the Never-Never so strongly that the most powerful wizards on the planet had required a full day to open them again. And someone had begun calling up outsiders in numbers, sending them to attack the White Council. The council is not what it was, Cowell had said. It has rotted from the inside. It will fall. Soon. The wardens fell back to fight a holding action against the Red Court so that our wounded could escape to safety, Lucio reported, her crisp voice at odds with her weary eyes. That was when they loosed the outsiders upon us. We lost another twenty-three wardens in the first moments of combat, and many more were wounded. There was silence while she took a long pull from her bottle, emptying it, then setting it down sharply on the table, anger flickering in her eyes. 
If senior council members McCoy and Liberty had not come to our aid, we might have all died there. Even with them, we managed to hold them only long enough for the gatekeeper and the Merlin to raise a ward behind us to give us time to escape. A ward? I blurted. Are you telling me that they stonewalled an entire army of vampires and demons with one ward? You don't get to be Merlin of the White Council by collecting bottle caps, Ramirez said, his voice dry. I glanced aside at Ramirez. He grinned at me and swigged beer. McCoy was injured, Lucio continued. Ramirez snorted. Who wasn't? Lucio snapped. Carlos. He lifted a hand in surrender and settled back onto his chair again, but his grin never faded. There were many injuries, Lucio continued, but as the hospice in Sicily had been taken, we diverted the worst cases to a hospital we control in the Congo. She stared at her bottle for a moment, her mouth opened, and then she closed it again. She closed her eyes. Morgan frowned at her. Then he put a hand on Lucio's shoulder, looked at me, and said, The vampires knew. I got a sick, twisting feeling in my stomach. Oh, God. It was daylight there, Morgan said, and the place was a fortress of the Merlin's wards. There was no way for the vampires to breach it from the never-never, and nothing short of a demon lord could have broken through them. His mouth twisted, and his eyes glittered with rage and hate. They sent mortals against us. Against men and women lying injured, unconscious, helpless in their beds. The anger in his voice seemed to strangle him for a moment. But, I said, look, I know what it's like going up against mortals you don't want to kill. It's difficult, but they can be stopped, fought. Bullets and explosives can be defended against which is why they used gas, Ramirez said quietly, stepping in where Morgan and Lucio's voices had failed. His own tone was serious. His grin had vanished. A nerve agent, probably Saren. They deployed it against the entire hospital, the people we had protecting it, and six square blocks of city around it. He put his own bottle down and said, No one survived. My God, I whispered. There was dead silence. Ebenezer? I asked in a whisper. You said he was wounded. Was he? Ramirez shook his head. Stubborn old bastard wouldn't go to the hospital, the young warden said. He went with one of the teams staging a counteroffensive with the Fellowship of St. Giles. Thousands of innocent mortals died, Lucio said, and there was a slow, low snarl in her voice. She kept it tightly leashed and under control, but I heard it. I recognized it, and I knew what it was like to feel it permeating my words. Women, children, thousands. And today I buried 143 wardens. I sat there, stunned. In a single, vicious stroke, the Red Court had very nearly destroyed the White Council. They have crossed every line, Lucio said, her voice quiet and precise. Violated every principle of war of our world and the mortal world alike. Madness. They have gone mad. They've committed suicide, I said quietly.
They don't have a prayer against the council and the fairy courts alike. The she were taken by surprise, Morgan rumbled. They aren't prepared for a fight, and we're holding on by our fingernails. We've got less than fifty wardens capable of combat. Without our communications network in order, members of the council have been attacked individually and by surprise. We don't know how many more wizards have died. And it gets even better, Ramirez said. Agents of the Red Court are haunting the ways through Ferry. We were attacked on the way here, twice. Our priority, Lucio said, voice crisp, is to consolidate our forces and to draw upon every available resource to restore the wardens as a fighting force. We must draw the members of the council together and make sure they are protected. We're reorganizing our security. She shook her head. And, frankly, we must protect the lives of the senior council. So long as they are concealed from the enemy and still able to take action, they are a dangerous force. Together, they wield more power than any hundred members of the council, and it can be concentrated with deadly effect, as the Merlin showed in the Never-Never. So long as they stand ready to strike, the enemy cannot openly unveil his full strength. More important, Morgan growled, the mortal wizards who betrayed us, whoever they are, fear the senior council. That is why their first move was an attempt to destroy them. Lucio nodded. If we can hold on until the fairy courts mobilize for action, we can recover from this attack. Which brings us to today, Lucio said, and studied me, tired and frank. Every other warden able to fight is currently either engaged against the enemy or safeguarding the senior council. Our lines of support and communication are tenuous. She gestured at those seated at the table. This is every resource the White Council has to spare. I looked at the weary captain of the wardens, at the battered Morgan, at Ramirez, who had reclaimed his cocky smile, and at Yoshimo and Kowalski, untried, quiet, and frightened. Warden Lucio, I said, may I speak to you privately? Morgan scowled and said in a hot voice, Anything you have to say to her, you can say to all... Lucio put her hand on Morgan's arm, a gentle gesture, but it cut him off. Morgan, perhaps you would be so kind as to get me another bottle, and I'm sure McAnally would be willing to provide us all with some dinner. Morgan stared at her for a second, then at me. Then he rose, smudged the chalk circle with the boot, and broke the circle around the table, releasing the buzzing tension from the air. Come on, kids, Ramirez told the other two younger wardens, rising. We have to go sit with Uncle Morgan while the other adults have a serious talk. He put a hand on my shoulder on the way past and squeezed. Hey, bartender, are those onion rings I smell? I waited until they had all settled down at the far end of the bar and Mac began to bring them some food. Then I turned to Lucio and said, I can't be a warden. She studied me for a second and then asked in a very precise, very polite voice, And why not? Because you people have been threatening to kill me for doing something I didn't do since I was sixteen years old, I said. You're all convinced I'm some sort of hideous threat, and every time you get the chance, you try to make my life miserable. Lucio listened attentively and then said, Yes, and? 
And, I said, I've spent my entire adult life with the wardens looking over my shoulder, waiting for a chance to accuse me of things I didn't do, and trying to set me up and entrap me when you never found me doing anything. Lucio's eyebrows shot up. What? Don't give me that, I said. You know damned well that Morgan tried to provoke me into attacking him just before we got the treaty with Winter, so he and the Merlin would have an excuse to throw me to the vampires. Lucio's eyes widened, and her voice came out harder. What? She shot a look at Morgan, and then back at me. Are you telling me the truth? There was some kind of cadence to the question that her words didn't usually have, and on pure instinct, I reached out with my senses. I could feel a light tension in the air, humming like the space between the tines of a tuning fork. Yes, I told her. The humming chime continued, unabated. I'm telling you the truth. She stared at me for a long second, and then settled back onto her chair. The humming tension faded. She folded her hands on the table, frowning down at them. Then there were rumors of how Morgan behaved around you, but I thought that they were only that. They weren't, I said. Morgan has threatened and persecuted me every time he got the chance. I clenched my right hand into a fist. And I have done nothing. I won't become a part of that, Warden Lucio, so keep the cape. I wouldn't polish my car with it. She regarded her folded hands, eyes narrow. Dresden, she said quietly. Their white council is at war. Would you simply abandon your own people to the mercies of the Red Court? Would you stand aside and let Kemmler's disciples have their way? Of course not, I said, and I never said I wouldn't fight, but I won't be wearing this. I shoved the cloak across the table. Keep it. She shoved it back across the table before me. Put it on. Thank you, no. Dresden. Lucio said, and her voice was calm and agate-hard. It is not a request. I don't respond well to threats, I said. Then respond to reality, she snapped. Dresden, the wardens are all but shattered. We need every battle-capable wizard we can recruit, train, or conscript. A lot of wizards can fight, I growled. And they aren't Harry Dresden, she said. You idiot! Don't you know what I'm offering you? Yeah, the chance to hunt down teenage kids who were never told the laws of magic and execute them for breaking them. The chance to badger and intimidate and interrogate anyone who doesn't suit me, neither of which I want anything to do with. Ebenezer said you were stubborn, but not that you were a fool. The council has been betrayed, Dresden, and you are the most infamous wizard in it. There are many who have spoken out against you, many who say that you began the war with the Red Court intentionally so that you could create an opportunity to bring about the fall of the Council. I burst out in bitter laughter. Me? That's insane. For crying out loud, I can't even balance my stupid checkbook. Lucio's eyes softened a little and she sighed. <sighs> I believe you. She shook her head. But you have a reputation, and the members of the council will be badly unsettled by this loss. Their fear could easily turn upon you.
That is why you are going to join the wardens. I scowled. I don't get it. It is time to set our past differences aside. If you wear the cloak of a warden and step into fight when the council is in its hour of need, it will make our people look at you differently. I took a deep breath. Oh, Vader syndrome. Excuse me? Vader syndrome, I said. There's no ally so impressive, encouraging, and well-loved as an ally who was an enemy that made you shake in your boots a couple of minutes ago. There's more to it than that, Lucio said. I think that you do not realize your own reputation. You have overcome more enemies and battled more evils than most wizards a century your senior. And times are changing. There are more young wizards attaining membership to the council than ever before, like Ramirez and his companions there. To them, you are a symbol of defiance to the conservative elements of the council and a hero who will risk his life when his principles demand it. I am? You are, Lucio said. I can't say that I approve of it, but right now the Council will need every scrap of courage and faith we can muster. Your presence and support in the face of a greater danger will appease your detractors, and the presence of a wizard who has experience in battle will encourage the younger members of the Council, she grimaced. Put simply, Dresden, we need you, and you need us. I rubbed at my eyes for a moment. Then I said, Let's say I do sign on. I'm willing to wear the cloak. I'm willing to fight for as long as the war is on. But I won't move away from Chicago. There are people here who depend on me. I glowered. And I won't bow my head to Morgan. I don't want him within a hundred miles of my town. Lucio rubbed at her jaw and then nodded slowly, her eyes thoughtful. I have to reassign Morgan in any case. She nodded again, more sharply. Then I'm conscripting you into the wardens as a regional commander. I blinked. You'll be in charge of security and operations in this region and coordinate with the other three American regional commanders. Ah, uh, I said, what does that mean? That it will be your job to protect mortals in this area, to be vigilant against supernatural threats in your region, and represent the Council in matters of diplomacy, to aid and assist other wizards who come to you for aid and protection, and, when required, to strike out at the enemies of the Council, such as the Red Court and their allies. I frowned. Ah... Uh, I pretty much do that anyway. Lucio's face broke into the first genuinely warm smile I'd ever seen on her, the care lines vanishing, replaced with crow's feet at the corners of her eyes. So now you'll do it in a gray cloak, her expression sobered. You're a fighter, Dresden. If the White Council is to survive, we need more like you. She pushed away from the table and walked over to the bar, carrying our empty bottles with her. When she came back, I had just finished getting the cloak pin settled and draping the heavy, soft gray fabric around my shoulders. She stopped in front of me and looked me up and down for a moment. Ramirez glanced at me, and his grin widened. Morgan looked, 
and from his expression, you would think someone had just shoved a knife into his testicles. Mac's brow furrowed, and he studied me in the cloak, his lips quietly pursed. Thank you, Lucio said quietly, and offered me an ale. I accepted it with a nod. We touched bottles and took a drink. Very well then, Commander, Lucio said, her tone turning brisk and businesslike. This is your territory, and you have the most recent intelligence on Kemmler's disciples. What is our next step? I shoved my hair back from my eyes and said, Okay, Warden Lucio, uh, Captain Lucio, let's sit down and get to work. It's getting dark, and we don't have much time. Chapter 32 when I walked through the door of Murphy's house, it was raining, and I was still wearing the gray cloak. I limped into the kitchen where Thomas and Butters and Bob were sitting at a table with a bunch of candles, paper, pencils, and empty cans of Coors. Thomas's jaw dropped open. Holy crap, he said. Butters blinked at Thomas and then at me. Uh, what? Harry, Bob said, orange eyelights glowing brightly. You stole a warden's cloak? I scowled at them and took the cloak off. It dripped all over the kitchen floor. I didn't steal it. Mouse came padding into the room, tail wagging, and I rubbed briefly at his ears. No, Bob said. So you took it off a body? No, I said, annoyed, and settled onto a chair at the table. I got drafted. Holy crap, Thomas said again. I don't get it, Butters said. Harry's joined the wizard secret police, Bob burbled. He gets to convict on suspicion and take justice into his own hands. How cool is that? Thomas looked at me steadily, and then at the door behind me, then back to me. I'm alone, I said quietly. Relax. He nodded. What happened? A lot, I said. There isn't time to cover it all now. But the wardens are in town and I'm not so worried about them crawling all over and finding out everyone's secrets. Why not? Thomas asked. Because at the moment all five of them are at the hotel downtown, getting showers and changing bandages, while I try to come up with more information about the heirs of Kemmler. Thomas blinked slowly. All five? And they have wounded? I nodded, my lips pressed hard together. Wow, Thomas said quietly. How bad is it? They drafted me, I said. That's bad, all right, Bob said cheerfully. I looked at the scattered papers and books on the table. Tell me you guys came up with something. Butters blinked a few times and then started fumbling at the papers on the table, peering at them in the candlelight. Uh, well, there's good news and bad news. Bad first, I said. I'm going to need to pick me up afterward. We've got nothing on those numbers, Butters said. I mean, they aren't a code. They're too short. They could be an address or an account number, but none of the banks we could get on the phone use that number of digits. He coughed apologetically. If I could have gotten on the net, I could have gotten you a lot more, but... He gestured uselessly around the room. We couldn't get one call in fifty to go through, and at most of the places we called, no one answered. And in the past hour, the phones have gone out altogether. I shook my head. Yeah, city's going insane, too. There were two fires between here and McAnally's, some kind of riot going on in Bucktown. 
I heard on a police radio. The governor has asked for help from the National Guard, Thomas said quietly. They're sending troops in to keep order on the streets. I blinked. How did you find that out? I called my sister, he said. I frowned. I thought Lara wasn't speaking with you. Thomas's voice went dry. Just because she cut me off from the family's money, kicked me out of any of our holdings, made it clear that I no longer have their protection, and she's holding the woman I love as a virtual prisoner, don't think she doesn't still like me, personally. So she did you a little favor, I said. Technically, Thomas said, she did you a little favor. Why did she do that? I asked. Well, I hinted about how, since her entire power base depended on a certain secret being kept, and since you were awfully irrational about protecting the good citizens of Chicago, that you might develop loose lips to sink her ship if she didn't help you in your moment of need. Um, I said, so you're telling me that I just engaged in blackmail against the ruler of the white court by proxy? Yeah, Thomas said. You've got some great big brass balls on you to do something like that, Harry. I guess I do. I shook my head. Why did I do that? Because we needed help, Thomas said. We were getting nowhere fast. Lara's got a ton of resources available to her and a lot of manpower. She was able to come up with some of the other information we needed. Which is the good news, Butters said. She wasn't blacked out and cut off from the Internet like we are, and she was able to get a bunch of information we couldn't. He passed me a piece of paper. Not on the numbers, but one of her people was able to find out about Native American artifacts and weapons here in Chicago. I looked up sharply at Butters. Yeah? He nodded at the paper, and I read over it. Yep, he said. The Native American Center is using their facility to host this big display on tribal hunting and warfare before all of us pale faces showed up with guns and smallpox. The History Channel is using it as a part of some history of warfare special, and they were filming there all last week. Yeah, I said. That could have some old hunter spirits attached to it. I read over the list. Damn it. I should have remembered this myself. The Field Museum has that big Cahokian artifacts exhibit that Professor Bartlesby was in charge of. Hell, it was a bunch of Indian artifacts that Corpse Taker helped assemble himself, probably with tonight in mind. Butters nodded. And the Mitchell Museum up in Evanston has got more Native American artifacts than either one put together. Crap, I said. That's it. How do you know that? Butters asked. It only stands to reason, Bob supplied. The whole point is to summon up as many old spirits as possible, and then consume them. The most spirits are going to be attracted to wherever there is the most old junk. I nodded. I remember this place now. That museum's on a college campus, right? Kendall College, Butters confirmed. College campus on Halloween night, Thomas said. Hell of a place for a gang of necromancers to slug it out. There's going to be collateral damage. No, there isn't, I said and I was surprised how vicious my own voice sounded. Because we're going to stop this stupid summoning, and then we're going to hunt those murderous bastards down and kill them. There was dead silence in the kitchen. Thomas and Butters both stared at me, expressions apprehensive. Maybe it's the cloak, Bob suggested brightly. Harry, do you feel any more judgmental and self-righteous than you did this morning? I took a slow and deep breath. Sorry, I said. Sorry. That came out kind of harsh. 
Maybe a little, Butters said, his voice all but a whisper. I rubbed at my face and glanced at the battery-powered clock on the wall of Murphy's kitchen. Okay, sundown's in just over an hour. I have to be ready to call up the Earl King by then. Um, Thomas said. Harry, if it's the Earl King's presence that's going to attract all of these old spirits to their old tools and stuff, then won't it do the same thing no matter who calls him up? Yeah, I said. Unless the one who calls him traps him in a circle to contain his power and leaves him there. Bob made a spluttering sound. Harry, that's a dangerous proposition. No, scratch that. It's an insane proposition. Even assuming you have the will to trap something like the Earl King in a circle, and even if you keep him there all night, he is not going to let that kind of insult go. He'll come back the next night and kill you, if you're lucky. I can worry about that after I've done it, I said. Wait, Butters said. Wait, wait. I mean, will it really matter? These guys don't have the bad magic book, right? Without that book, all they can do is call up the spirits. They can't, you know, eat them, right? We can't assume that they don't have it, I said. Gravain might have found it. But the other two couldn't, right? Butters said. Even if they haven't, they'll still be there, I said. They can't afford to assume that their rivals haven't gotten the book. So they're going to show up with everything they have, to try to prevent one of the others from going through with the ritual. Why? Butters asked. Because they hate each other, I said. And if one of them goes all godly, he's going to enjoy crushing the others. It will probably be the first thing he does. Oh, Butters said. That's why I need you to do something for me, Thomas. My brother nodded. Name it. I grabbed a blank piece of paper and a pencil and started writing. This is a note. I want you to take it down to the address I'm writing down and get it to the wardens. I'm not going anywhere close to the wardens, Thomas said. You don't have to, I said. They're at a hotel. You will leave it at the desk and ask the clerk to take it to them. Then clear out fast. Are they going to trust a note? Thomas asked, skeptical. I told them to expect a messenger if I couldn't get there myself. They know about the Earl King that I'm trying to sidetrack him. They need to know where the heirs of Kemmler are going to be so that they can take them down. Five of them, Thomas said quietly. They'll be outnumbered by one. I grimaced. It would be worse than that. Ramirez had looked like he could handle himself, but the two rookies couldn't have stood up to any of the heirs or their companions from what I'd seen. Once I've secured the Earl King, I'll be along as quick as I can. Besides that, they're wardens, I said. They'll take down Kemmler's flunkies. Or die trying, Thomas said. He grimaced. How should I get down there? I went to another kitchen drawer and rummaged in it until I found Murphy's spare keys. I tossed them to Thomas. Here, her motorcycle is in the shed. Right, he said, but his expression was wary. She gonna mind me stealing her bike? It's in a good cause, I told him. The streets are bad, and the wardens need to get moving soonest. Go. Thomas nodded, pocketed the keys, and shrugged into his leather jacket. I'll get back here as soon as I'm done. Yeah, I said quietly. Thomas, to the wardens you're nothing but a white-court vampire. If they see you, they'll be out for blood. I understand, he said. His voice was a little bitter. If I'm not back in time, Harry, good luck. He offered his hand, and we traded grips, hard.
My hand must have been cold with nerves because his felt warm. Then he let go of my hand, nodded to Bob and Butters, and headed out into the rain. A minute later, Murphy's Harley grumbled in the backyard and then purred off into the rain and gloom. I sat there in silence for a minute, then got up and went to the stove. I got the teapot out, filled it up, and put it on the gas burner to boil. It took me a minute to find Murphy's collection of teas, and it was gratuitously complex. I mean, come on, how many different types of tea do you really need? Maybe I'm prejudiced because I take my tea with so much sugar that the actual flavor is sort of an aftertaste. I found some in instant bags that smelled vaguely minty. Tea? I asked Butters. Sure, he said. I got out two cups. What's next? he asked. Hot tea, I said. Staying warm. Then I go out in the rain and call up the Earl King. You're staying inside while I do. Why? he asked. Because it's going to be dangerous. Well, yeah, he said. But why inside the house? I mean, this super goblin can just rip the walls apart, right? Strong enough to do it, probably, I said. But it can't. The house is protected by its threshold. Butters looked at me blankly. Which means what? I leaned a hip on the counter and explained. A threshold is a kind of energy that surrounds a home. It's... I frowned, thinking how to explain it. It's sort of like the home has a positive charge to it. If outside magic wants to come in, it has to neutralize that charge first. Big, tough things from the never-never need a lot of power just to stay in our world. They don't usually have enough to take out a threshold and still have enough juice to be dangerous. It's like that vampire thing, he asked. They can't come in if you don't invite them? Pretty much, yeah. If you invite something in, your threshold won't affect it. But other magical beings and energy have trouble with it. It's a solid defense. Didn't help your place much, Butters observed. My place is a rental apartment, I said. And except for the past several months, it's been just me living there. Doesn't give it the same kind of energy as you'd find in a long-established home. Oh, is that what they mean by safe as houses, then? I smiled a little. A house doesn't make a home. When the place has got history, family, emotions, worries, joys worked into the wood, that's when it gets a solid threshold. This house has been in the Murphy clan for better than a hundred years and lived in for every one of them. It's solid. You'll be safe in here. But it's not going to get loose once you call it up, Butters said, right? That's the plan. But even if it did, you aren't the one who was going to piss it off. There won't be any reason for it to come after you. Oh, good, he said. He blinked at me and said, apologetically, Not that I wanted to come after you, Harry. I don't blame you, I said. Butters nodded. Why zombies, he asked. Huh? Sorry, changing topics, new question. Why do all these necromancer types use zombies? Not all of them do, I pointed out. Corpse Taker had called up a bunch of semi-corporeal ghosts, specters. But human, Butters said. Zombies look human. Specters look human. Why not whistle up a pack of decayed rats? Or maybe semi-corporeal mosquitoes? Why use people? Oh, I said. It's got to do with a kind of metaphysical impression that any given creature leaves upon its death. Sort of like a footprint. 
Human beings leave larger footprints than most animals, which means that you can pour more energy into reanimating them. They make stronger goons, Butters clarified. Yes. How come Gravain had fresh corpses when he came to get me, but he attacked your house with old ones? I mean, I saw those things up close, he shivered. Some of them must have dated back to the beginning of the 20th century. Same reason they animate humans instead of animals, I said. Older corpses leave a deeper metaphysical imprint. They're harder to call up, but once you get them here, they're easier to control, stronger, more difficult to damage. Old corpses get you stronger undead flunkies, he said. Right, I said. I could see the wheels turning in Butters' head as he processed the information. He looked like he was busy lining up dozens more questions, spawned by the answers to the first few, and I had a feeling he would pursue them with relentless curiosity. Okay, but what if Butters... I said as gently as I could. Not now. All I want to do is have a quiet cup of tea. An inspiration hit me. Ask Bob, I told him. Bob knows a hell of a lot more than I do anyway. Oh, Butters said. He looked from me to the skull. Um, yeah, I guess Thomas was talking to it. He, Bob said indignantly. I am very much a he. I'm not some kind of freaking animatronic tinker toy. Right, Butters said. Um, sorry, Bob. Do you mind if I ask you some questions? It's a waste of my vast intellect and talent, Bob sneered. Do it, Bob. I told him. Oh, man. The orange lights in the skull's eye sockets rolled. Fine. I haven't got anything better to do than to teach kindergarten. Great, Butters bubbled and sat down at the table. He grabbed some more paper and a pencil. Well, how about we start with... I fixed myself a cup of tea and one for Butters. I put the cup down near him, but he took little notice of it. He was deeply involved in a conversation with Bob. I slipped out into the living room and put my aching leg up on the table, then settled back onto the couch with my tea. I sat in the gloom, sipping hot, sweet, mint, something or other, and tried to order my thoughts. I was tired enough that it didn't take too long. I was about to call up a peer of Queen Mab and try to trap it for an entire night. A garden spider had about as much chance of trapping a Bengal tiger except that the Bengal tiger probably wouldn't bother to squash the spider for daring to make the attempt. The Earl King would. That made the whole notion more stupid than most of my plans, but I didn't have too much choice in the matter. The presence of the Earl King in the area would drastically increase the number and the potency of the undead that the Kemlerites were planning to summon tonight. If I could block the Earl King's presence from Chicago, it would take a big chunk out of the powers the necromancers would summon. Gravain and company were formidable enough without calling up an army of super-zombies and uber-ghosts. If I could stop that from happening, it might give Lucio and her wardens a real chance to defeat them. If I wasn't fast enough to call the Earl King before one of the Kemlerites, or if he escaped my hold and ran loose through Chicago, people would die. The Earl King would summon the Wild Hunt into a lightless Chicago Halloween night, and anyone they caught in the open would be torn to shreds. Lightning flickered outside, somehow too dark and dull to be natural. 
A beat later, thunder ripped through the evening air, shaking the little house. The wind started to pick up, and the steady beat of rain on the windows surged and retreated with its restless gusting. I didn't feel like a wizard. I didn't feel like a deadly and powerful warden. I didn't feel like the supernatural champion of Chicago or a fearless foe of evil, a daring summoner able to cast his defiance into the teeth of a supernatural titan or an enlightened sage of the mystic arts. I felt like a scarred, battered, aching, one-handed man with few pleasant prospects for the future and a ridiculous pair of pants with one leg slashed off. Mouse padded over to me through the dimness. He chuffed softly at me and then laid his head down on my leg. My eyes were closed, but I could hear his tail thumping softly against the couch. I rested my bad hand on Mouse's head and petted him awkwardly. Mouse didn't mind. He just leaned against me, loaning me the warmth of his fur and the silent faithfulness of his presence. It made me feel better. Mouse might not have been the smartest creature on earth, but he was steady, kind, loyal, and was possessed of the uncanny wisdom of beasts for knowing whom to trust. I might not have been a superhero, but Mouse thought that I was pretty darn cool. That meant something. It would have to be enough. I set my teacup down, took my foot off Murphy's coffee table, and rose. I picked up my staff without looking at it, took a deep breath, and clenched my jaw. Then I marched into the kitchen in a lopsided stalk. Butters, I said, stay here with Bob and Mouse, watch my back. If you see anyone trying to sneak up on me, give a yell. Right, he said, will do. I nodded to him and went out into the rain to test my will against the legendary lord of the wild hunt. Chapter 33 The rain had plastered my hair to my head by the time I got all the material for the summoning out of the beetle's trunk. I stuffed it all into a gym bag and then walked out to the middle of the backyard. It wasn't quite too dark to see, not yet, but I didn't want to make any mistakes, so I used the last of the chemical light sticks Kincaid had given me before our raid on Mavra's scourge the year before. I snapped it and shook it up, and green-yellow light spread out in a little pool around me. The rain limited how much it could spread, and it created the illusion that the entire world had shrunk to a ten-foot circle of rain and grass and green-golden light. I started with a circle where I intended to trap the Earl King. The coil of barbed wire still gleamed with its factory finish. I uncoiled enough of it to give me several small holes in my fingers and to join into a circle about seven feet across. Though it wasn't cold iron in the technical sense, it was very much what the fairies meant when they said cold iron. The wire had plenty of iron in it, and cold iron was the bane of the fairy world. I laid the barbed wire out, straightening it slightly as I went, and tacked it down into the damp earth with horseshoe-shaped metal staples as long as my little finger. I double-checked every staple and then clipped the barbed wire from the larger roll and used a pair of pliers to twist the loose ends together. After that, I marked out the points of an invisible five-pointed star within the circle and placed several articles with an affinity for the Earl King, a heavy collar one might place on a hunting hound, a whetstone, a small bowie knife, flint and steel, 
and several steel arrowheads. Then I placed my own affinity items opposite those of the Earl Kings outside the circle. A used copy of The Hobbit, the splintered end of my last blasting rod, my forty-four, a parking ticket I hadn't paid yet, and finally my mother's silver pentacle amulet. I stepped back and went over the circle again, making sure that it was fixed solidly and that nothing had fallen across it. In the back of my mind somewhere, I was aware of the approach of sunset. I don't know how I knew it, really. It was already darker than most nights, and I certainly couldn't judge when the sun would be down with all those rain clouds in the way, but that didn't seem to matter. I could feel the sunlight still gliding down to be trapped in the overcast, could feel its presence and warmth with some part of my mind that wasn't entirely beholden to mere physics. I could feel it fading, and felt the concurrent stirring of the magical forces of night as it did. The energy of night was far different than that of daylight. Not inherently evil, but wilder, more dangerous, more unpredictable. Night was a time of endings, and this night, Sawin, All Hallows' Eve, was particularly so. On this night, the forces of the spirit world, the wild things that haunted the never-never, drawn to death and decay, would flit freely back and forth. Spirits would turn restless in their graves and wander the world, mostly unseen by mortal eyes. The wild beasts could feel the night coming, and their metropolitan cousins could sense the knife edge of danger and energy in the air. Dogs began to howl in the neighborhood around me. First one, then two, then dozens, and their long, low, mournful howls rose up in a haunting tide. Dark was only moments away, and I stripped the black leather glove from my bad hand and knelt by the barbed wire circle. Then I leaned down and pressed my left palm, all scarred but for the shape of Lashiel's sigil like a living brand on my skin, against the nearest tine of barbed wire, pressing my flesh down with careful deliberation. I didn't feel the wire cut me, but there was a trickle of warmth over a portion of the sigil, and my blood, black in the greenish chemical light, slipped down over the barbed wire, mixing with my will to send energy coursing into the cold iron prison I had built. The prison was built and the trap was set. I wished that there had been more time to assemble the articles I'd needed, if there had been months to prepare, I could have worked with Bob to figure out the best way to do the job. The materials might have been rare and expensive and difficult to attain, but it was within the realm of possibility to build a circle from which even a being like the Earl King could not lightly escape. But there hadn't been time, and if my quickie-mart Alcatraz was going to do the job, it would need all of my focus and determination. So I shut my doubts into a closet in the back of my mind, along with my fears. I knelt in my coat in the rain, staff still in my right hand, and took slow, deep breaths. I envisioned myself drawing in power with each breath, and exhaling weakness and distraction. I felt the magic stirring around me and within me as I did, and I started building up my will, gathering my strength for use until the wet grass seemed to sparkle with too many points of green-gold light, and the hairs on my neck rose up on end. I took in a final deep breath, and on the exhale, night fell.
I opened my mouth and began to call out in the steady cadence of the summoning. My voice rang hollow in the wind and rain, muffled but strong, and I poured some of my will into the words until the power in them began to make the air ripple around them as they flowed from my lips. There in the darkness I reached into the spirit world to call up one of the deadliest beings of fairy. And the Earl King answered. One moment the circle was empty, then there was a flash of lightning, a crash of thunder, and a disembodied black shadow appeared on the grass within the circle. The shadow of a tall, standing figure with no physical presence to cast it. I barely stopped myself from flinching and breaking off the summoning chant, a mistake that would have freed the Earl King to leave at best and freed it to kill me at worst. But I recovered myself and kept up the litany all the way through to the end. When I finished it, my voice had risen to a strident, silvery clarion, and on the last word, lightning flashed down from the storm, green and white and eye-searing. It struck down upon the circle, slammed against it, and then scattered out around the circle in a hissing matrix of electricity and steam and magic, defining the cylinder of the magic circle in a sparkle of greenish light that rose up into the night for a moment and then faded away. When it was gone, the shadow within my circle was no longer alone. The Earl King stood better than eight feet high. Other than that, it looked more or less like a human, dressed in close-fitting leathers and mail of some dark, matte-black substance. It wore a bucket-shaped helmet that covered its face, and the horns of an enormous stag rose up and away from the helm. Within the slit of the helmet's visor, I could see twin gleams of amber fire, and as those terrible eyes settled upon me, I could feel the presence of the being behind them like a sudden raw and wild hunger that pressed against the outside of my skin. I could feel the Earl King's lust for the wild night, for the hunt, and for the kill. Lightning flashed again, and the rain came down harder, and he raised his arms slowly, dismissing me and stretching his body up to glory in the storm. It is time, mortal. Release me. The words suddenly appeared in my head without going through my ears, scarlet and glowing and scalding. This time I did flinch as the Earl King's will sent meaning into my thoughts like a well-thrown spear. I tore my attention away from that lance of thought and spoke aloud in reply. I will not release you. The glowing eyes within the helm snapped back to me, flaring larger and brighter. I am no beast to be lured and trapped, mortal. Set me free and join me in the hunt. Images came with the thoughts this time. The rush of rain and wind in my face, raw hunger in my belly that I was about to sate, the strength and power of my body and that of the mount beneath me, and the glorious thrill of the chase as the prey fled as it was created to do, testing my strength, speed, endurance, and will while the night called and the storm raged around me. To my surprise, there was no sense of hate in it, no twisting bitterness of despair. There was only a wild and ferocious joy, an adrenaline sense of excitement, of passion, of savage harmony, red in tooth and claw. 
I barely managed to pull my thoughts back into my own control, grinding my teeth and reminding myself that I was kneeling in Murphy's backyard, not pursuing game through the forest primeval. The Earl King might not be evil incarnate, but that didn't mean that he wasn't far too dangerous to be allowed to go free. No, I growled. I will not release you. His amber flame eyes narrowed, and he dropped slowly into a crouch, knees bent, his fingers resting lightly on the grass just inside the barbed wire. Those eyes were barely three feet from mine, and he considered me in silence that swiftly became a torment of suspense. You are he, the Earl King cast at me. He who defied Queen Winter, he who slew Lady Summer. In those thoughts, I saw Mab standing over me as I lay stunned beside the Summer Lady's corpse, offering me her hand. I felt Aurora's blood drying on my skin, tasted it, harsh and sweet in my mouth. I had to force myself not to try to spit the phantom taste from my tongue. I am he, I said. We are not foes, came his thoughts. And he was curious about it, even baffled. In sending me his thoughts, I also got flashes of emotion from him. You are part of the hunt, a predator. Why do you call me, if not to join me? To prevent another from setting you free this night. The Earl King tilted its head. There was no sending of thought, but I read the gesture clearly enough to interpret it as if he had. Why? Because your presence would mean suffering and death for those people I would protect. Man suffers, man dies. It is how things are. Not tonight it isn't, I growled. Hunter, cast the Earl King, you are not strong enough to hold me. Release me, lest I turn the hunt upon you. And suddenly I felt the other side of the hunt. I felt my legs singing with the strength of terror. I felt my lungs burning, felt my body moving with the power and grace that only the approach of death can summon from it. I fled over the rough ground, bounding like a deer, and knew the whole while that there was no escape. Thrice I say and done, I gasped, forcing the words out in a defiant scream. I will not release you. And the Earl King rose, an unearthly scream piercing the night. The chorus of howling dogs rose with it, louder and louder, and the storm lashed at the air with sabers of wind and lances of lightning. The sound was deafening, the light searing, and the freaking ground started to tremble as the Earl King lashed out against my circle with his will. I stood my ground, facing the Earl King, and casting my will into the circle forcing it against his own power, struggling to contain him while he sought to burst free from my enchantment. It was an enormous struggle, and almost hopeless. I felt like a man straining to push a car up a hill. Not only was it a difficult weight to begin to move, but a greater force was working against me, and if I allowed it to move even an inch, it would begin to gain momentum and crush me beneath it. So I fought for that inch, refusing to give it to him. The Earl King wasn't an evil being, but he was a force of nature, power and violence without conscience or restraint.
He screamed again, and the howling wind and rain and the call of beasts grew even louder. Again he surged against the circle of my will, and again I held him in. While the Earl King shook his head like a maddened beast, and his antlers slammed against the confining wall of the circle that imprisoned him, sending ripples of greenish light out through the circle. Then he reached to his side and drew a black sword from its scabbard. He lifted the blade, and a lance of green lightning flashed down from the storm, touching upon its tip and wreathing it in blinding light. Then he took the sword in both hands and brought it down upon the barrier. I have little memory of what the third blow was like. I remember it in much the same way I do the burning of my left hand. There was too much light, too much energy, a tide of agony, and I was terrified. My vision faded to a blind field of white, and I thrust my staff hard against the ground to keep from falling. And then my vision began to clear. The tide began to recede. And within the circle, whirling in a frenzy of frustration and need, was the Earl King. His power was fading, and the circle I'd built had been good enough to give me enough leverage to hold him. I thought I heard a muffled voice somewhere amid all the wind and rain and thunder and the swift pounding of my own heart. I started to look around for the source of the noise. And then someone hit me on the back of the head. I remember that part, because I'd been through it before. A flash of light, pain, a sickening whirling sensation as I fell, and a disjointed looseness to limbs that had suddenly gone useless. I fell to one side, shocked that the whole world had suddenly tilted on end. The grass suddenly felt cold and wet against my cheek. With a shriek of triumph, the Earl King shattered my circle into a cloud of golden light that faded and vanished. There was a roar of wind, and then an enormous horse landed in Murphy's yard, as if it had just vaulted over the whole of her house. The Earl King flung himself up onto the black steed's back and let loose an eerie cry. When he did, all the howling music of the dogs, primitive and fierce, seemed to congeal into flashes of lightning that leapt up from the ground and into the clouds. For a second there was silence, and then the screaming winds warbled and whistled into deeper, more terrifying howls than any dog had ever uttered. From the shadows rushed a great hound, a beast the size of a pony, with dark fur, gleaming white teeth, and the flaming amber eyes of the Earl King himself. More hounds came leaping from the shadows, bounding in bloodthirsty joy around the Earl King's horse. The Earl King whirled his steed, lifted his black sword in a mocking salute to me, and then cried out to his steed and his hounds. The black horse gathered itself and leapt into the air, then started churning its legs as if running up a hill, and kept going up. The hounds leapt and followed their master up into the teeth of the storm. Lightning flashed in my eyes, and when it died again, they were gone. The wild hunt was loose in Chicago, and I had been the one to call them here. I struggled until I began to move. I wasn't able to get enough balance to rise, but I managed to roll over onto my back. Cold raindrops slapped against my face. Cowell put the barrel of my own forty-four to the end of my nose and said, An impressive display, Dresden. It's always such a pity when someone with such talent dies so young.
Chapter 34 I looked at the cavernous barrel and thought to myself that a forty-four really was a ridiculously big gun. Then I looked past it to Cowell and said, But you aren't planning on doing it yourself, are you? Otherwise, you'd have just shot me in the back of the head and had done with it. With me groggy like that, you might not even have had a death curse to worry about. Very good, Cowell said approvingly. Your reason at least seems sound. Provided you remain very still and give me no reason to think you a threat, I'll be glad to let you live until the Earl King returns for you. I held still, partly because I didn't want to get shot, and partly because I thought I might throw up if I moved my head too much. How'd you find me? I asked. Kumori and I have been taking turns tailing you most of the day, he said. When do you people sleep? I asked. No rest for the wicked, Cowell said. His tone was amused from within his heavy hood, but the gun never wavered. Someone had to keep an eye on me, I said. You and Gravain and Corpse Taker all wanted the Earl King to be in town. It didn't matter to you who called him as long as someone did. And you were the only one with an interest in keeping him away, Cowell said. All I needed to do was watch you and ensure that you did not actually trap the Earl King. And that's why you followed me, I said. It's one reason, he replied. I think you might actually have done it, you know, had I not interrupted you. I was the only one of the three of us who thought you might succeed. I don't get it, I said. I thought that you guys hated one another's guts. Oh, yes. Then are you working together or trying to kill each other? I asked. Why, yes, Cowell said, and what sounded like a genuine laugh bubbled in his voice. We smile at one another and play nicely all in the name of Kemmler's greater glory, of course. But we are all planning on killing one another as soon as it's convenient. I take it that Corpse Taker tried to remove Gravain last night. Yeah, it was a real party. Pity. I would have enjoyed watching them in action again. But I was busy with the actual work. That's how it usually works out. Taking out the city's power grid. And phone lines, radio communications, and quite a few other subtler things, Cowell said. It was difficult, but someone had to do it. Naturally, it fell to me. But we'll see how things settle out before morning. Huh, I said. They think they're using you to get the serious technical magic done while they save up their juice for the fight. And you think you're lulling them off guard so that when the Dark Hallow goes down, you get the power. There's no real reason to practice my sword play and summoning of the dead when I have no intention of entering a tactical contest with them. You really intend to make yourself into a god? I asked. I intend to take power, Cowell said. I regard myself as the least of the possible evils. Uh-huh, I said. Someone is going to get the power. Might as well be you. Something like that? Something like that, Cowell said. What if no one got it, I said. I don't really see that happening, he said. Gravain and the Corpse Taker are determined. I intend to beat them to the prize and use it to destroy them. It's the only way to be sure one of those madmen does not become something more terrible than the Earth has ever seen. Right, I said. You're the correct madman for the job.
Cowell was silent for a long moment in the rain. Drops fell off the end of my pistol in his gloved hand. Then he said, his voice pensive, I do not perceive myself to be mad, but if I were truly mad, would I be able to tell? I shivered, probably from the rain and the cold. Cowell took a step back from me and said, voice firm and confident again, Did you find him? I looked behind me and saw Kumori glide out the back door of Murphy's house. Yes. I stared hard at Kumori and my heart lurched in my chest. She left the door open behind her. There was no candlelight in the kitchen. There was no movement inside the house. Excellent, Cowell said. He took a step back from me. I have already warned you to stay clear of my path, Dresden. I now suspect that you are too proud to back down. I know of the wardens now in the city. They pose no serious obstacle to my plans. You think you can take them in a fight, I said? I have no intention of fighting them, Dresden, Cowell replied. I'm simply going to kill them. Join them, if it suits you to do so, instead of waiting for the Earl King. It makes no difference to me how you die. His voice was steady and absolutely confident. It scared me. My heart lurched in my chest. Fear for Butters and a dawning understanding of Cowell's quiet madness competing to see which could make it race faster. There's one problem, Cowell, I said. Cowell began to turn away, but then paused. Oh? You still don't have the word. How are you going to manage the Dark Hollow without it? For an answer, Cowell carefully lowered the hammer on my revolver and turned away. And he laughed quietly under his breath. He started walking, and Kumori hurried to his side. Then Cowell tossed my gun into the grass, raised his hand, and flicked it at the air before him. I felt a surge of power as he parted the veil between the material world and the never-never, and they both stepped through it, vanishing from Murphy's backyard. The rift sealed behind Cowell, so quietly and smoothly that I would never have been able to tell it had opened at all. I was left alone in the wind and the darkness and the cold rain. Somewhere in the distance there was an echoing howl that came from above me and very far away. It should have frightened me, but I was so woozy that I mostly wanted to lie down and close my eyes for a minute. I knew that if I did, I might not open them for a while. Maybe not ever. I had to check on Butters and Mouse. I rolled over and picked up my staff, then crawled a couple of feet and got my mother's pentacle. Then I stood up. My head pounded with a dull, throbbing beat of pain, and I bowed my head forward for a moment, letting cold rain fall onto the lump forming on the back of my skull. The worst of it passed after a minute, and I got the pain under control. I'd taken harder shots to the head than that one had been, and I didn't have time to coddle myself. I blew out a harsh breath and shambled into the house. I found it dark. All the candles that had been lit now extinguished. I lifted my mother's pentacle and ran my will through it, causing it to pulse and then glow with silver-blue light. I lifted the pentacle over my head and surveyed the kitchen. It was empty. There was no sign of mouse or butters, 
and no evidence of a struggle, either. My fear subsided a little. If Kamori had found them, there would be signs of violence, blood, scattered furnishings. Butters' papers were still stacked up neatly on the kitchen table. Murphy's house wasn't a large one, and there were only so many places Butters could be. I limped into the living room and then down the short hall to the bedrooms and the bathroom. Butters? I called softly. It's Harry. Mouse? There was a sudden rough scratching at the door of the linen closet beside me, and I almost jumped through the ceiling. I swallowed in an effort to force my heart back down into my chest, then opened the closet door. Butters and Mouse crouched on the floor of the closet. Butters was at the rear, and though Mouse looked cramped, he crouched solidly between Butters and the door. His tail began to thump against the inside of the closet when he saw me, and he wriggled his way clear to come to me. Oh, thank God, Butters said. He squirmed out of the closet after Mouse. Harry, are you all right? Then worse, I told him. Are you okay? What happened? Um... Butters said. I saw you out there, and then there was something inside that ring of barbed wire, and I was... Uh, I couldn't see it very well. But then the wind kicked up, and I thought I saw something moving outside, and I... I yelled and sort of panicked. His face flushed. Sorry. I was just much shorter than that thing. I panicked. He'd rabbited. All in all, probably not a stupid reaction to the presence of an angry lord of fairy. Don't worry about it, I said. Mouse stayed with you? Yeah, Butter said. I guess so. He started to try to get outside when that thing in the circle screamed. I was holding him back. I didn't realize I still had his collar when I... Uh, Butters' face turned greenish and he said, Excuse me. Then he sprinted for the bathroom. I heard him throwing up inside and frowned down at Mouse. You know what, I told the dog. I don't care if Butters had been chock full of gamma radiation and had green skin and purple pants. There's no way he could haul you into a closet with him. Mouse looked up at me and tilted his head to one side, doggy expression enigmatic. But that would mean that it was the other way around, that you were the one hauling Butters to a hiding place. Mouse's jaw dropped open into a grin. But that would mean that you knew you couldn't handle Kumori and that she was dangerous to Butters. And you knew that I wanted you to protect him. And that instead of fighting or running away, you formulated a plan to hide him. I frowned. And dogs aren't supposed to be that smart. Mouse snorted out a little sneeze, shook his fuzzy head, and then flopped over onto his back, eyes begging me to scratch his tummy. What the hell, I said, and started scratching. Looks to me like you earned it. Butters emerged from the bathroom a couple of minutes later. Sorry, he said. Nerves, I, uh... Harry, I'm sorry I ran away like that. Took cover, I provided. In the action business, when you don't want to say you ran like a mouse, you call it taking cover. It's more heroic. Right, Butters said, flushing. I took cover. It's fun, taking cover, I said. I take cover all the time. What happened? Butters asked. I called the Earl King, but someone kept me from keeping him penned up. They came in the house for a minute, and 
I felt my voice trail off. My relief that Butters and Mouse were all right began to fade as I realized that they had never been what Komori had been searching for. What? Butters said quietly. Harry, what is it? Son of a bitch, I swore, and my voice was a sulfurous snarl. How could I be so stupid? I whirled and stalked back down the hall, through the living room and into the kitchen, lifting my light. On the kitchen table, there were only empty cups of tea, empty cans, unlit candles, paper, and pens. In the spot where Bob the Skull had sat, there was nothing. Oh, man, Butters said quietly at my elbow. Oh, man, they took him. They took him, I spat. Why? Butters whispered. Why would they do that? Because Bob the Skull hasn't always been mine, I growled. He used to belong to my old teacher, Justin. And before that, he belonged to the necromancer, Kemmler. I whirled in a fury and slammed my fist into Murphy's refrigerator so hard that it dented the side and split my middle knuckle open. I, I, I don't get it, Butters said, his voice very quiet. Bob did for Kemmler what he did for me. He was a consultant, a research assistant, a sounding board for magical theory, I said. That's why Cal took him. Cal's doing research? Butters asked. No, I spat. Cowl knew that Bob used to be Kemmler's. Somewhere in there, Bob knows everything about the theory that Kemmler did. What does that mean? It means that Cowl doesn't need the word of Kemmler now. He doesn't need the stupid book to enact the Dark Hallow because he's got the spirit that helped Kemmler write it. I shook my head, bitter regret, a metallic taste in my mouth. And I practically gave it to him.